Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Metastation. I'm Erin. I am an English professor in Mississippi. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. Today's episode is called Perverse Instantiation, part one. It's the first half, obviously, the two-part finale. And we're going to start by kind of taking everyone through what does perverse instantiation actually mean? The most apropos definition is the one that Jason Rothenberg gave in his producer's promo this week. Because that's the one, obviously, that the, that the writer's room was, was working on. That's the one that they see as being most relevant. So what Jason said is that it, perverse instantiation is achieving a just end through perverse means. I think that's a much more generalized version of the technical definition of a perverse instantiation, which in terms of AI... It means for an AI to achieve the programmed end, the program goal you gave it, but in a way that has unfortunate or disastrous results. And specifically, I think most often results is to human extinction. The technical definition, AI does what you tell it to do by killing everyone or close to everyone. But for the purposes of the show, you know, they've sort of generalized that to mean... You're achieving whatever end you want to go for, which is a good end, a just end, but achieving that end requires you to do perverse things. Perverse here, I think, is probably pretty broadly construed. You know, anything that seems wrong or bad, something that you wouldn't normally do. So I think, for instance, one very obvious example to me would be Clark refusing to take the flame despite her mother hanging herself in front of her. You know, she's achieving a just end which is not taking the chip and dooming everyone, but she has to do something really perverse, which is to watch her mother perhaps die. Mm -hmm. That might be one example. There's lots, lots more throughout. We'll see how it comes up throughout the podcast. And then if we, if you think of some listeners that we didn't talk about, we have a brand spanking new Tumblr for our uh, podcast, which is metastation, all one word, metastation.com tumblr.com so if you have questions for us about anything about the show that you want us to talk about on air you want us to answer on tumblr you can send us messages there if you have other ideas about perverse instantiations in this episode or predictions for what perverse instantiations we'll see for the next one then you can send them to us there as well so that's perverse instantiation thank you professor aaron (laughs) you're welcome this is the first time I think all season that we've really had a title that is a clue that is sort of its own thing to unpack As the titles were kind of rolling out over the season, some of them gave us, I think, some good structural clues to like, as soon as we saw that there was one called Nevermore, we were like, okay, so Nevermore is going to be the one that's all about Raven. And then Red Sky at Morning, which is obviously from this really common nautical saying, maybe we're going to meet Luna. But this was the first one where it felt like them kind of giving us a little bit of a window before we really knew sort of how the finale was going to unfold. Because we talked about it before maybe three or four podcasts ago when they had just released the yeah, title. And right. so it was interesting watching the episode and then also rewatching it with a more analytical brain when I was less panicked about everyone <laughs> I love dying and looking for ways that played into all the stories. It's a conceptual title, you know, it's like a thematic yeah. title. It's giving you a conceptual framework for what's happening in the events and the choices and the characters in the episode, which is really interesting. And potentially also, too, I think it's a connective thread between a lot of the storylines that we've sort of have been seeing developing. I was thinking when you were talking just now, there's some really interesting echoes that kicked into high gear in the last episode with hearing Luna kind of dropping truth bombs on the Adventure Squad about if you do something 
that you believe is just, but you either do it for the wrong reasons or you do terrible things to get there. Was that thing really just? And, you know, Luna's morality, like we talked about, is very black and white. But those questions have really been sort of woven throughout this whole season and are really coming to a head now. You could go all the way back to, you know, Pike and Bellamy killing the ground army. You could argue that's an instance of perverse instantiation. You know, it's a just end, which is to protect their people, but it's a very perverse means, right? So I think if you go back through the whole season, you can see this idea has been at work on various levels throughout. Yeah. Yeah. And you could say, and this is a very, very perverse instantiation, but in some ways, if the the ultimate end goal of this season, if the ultimate good is the destruction of Allie, which only became possible through the death of Lexa, revealing to everybody how the ascendancy process works and the flame being put into Clark so Clark could destroy it, then it's like the death of Lexa was a step that made that ultimate end goal necessary. Yeah. We've sort of been doing this That's all season. Totally true. It's a very dark place where we leave at the end of this it episode. Is, is. So we're going to do something a little bit different with this podcast than we've done before, where we normally sort of talk through each storyline. We're really in one overarching A story that involves a lot of different characters and takes place in a number of different worlds geographically. So we're going to sort of take this apart a little bit, I think, to start out character by character. Let's start with Jasper. Let's start with Jasper. Because okay. that's, that's the grouping that's like really, if anybody's separate, it's them. Yeah. They can't talk to the rest. So Yeah. And so Jasper's Jasper, kind of at the heart of it. Yeah, yeah. So Jasper and Monty and Raven. I thought everything in this episode was really effective. Yes. You know, like yes. and the way that they unfolded the reveal on Jasper, like you pointed out, you know, when we were watching, technically it's very well done. Yeah. The way that they structure and they pace it, it's very well done. Yeah. But that was the one that there were things about that storyline, especially with Jasper, that just like bugged me. So let's start there. We were talking as we were rewatching it. And I was also thinking about this when I watched it in real time last night, huddled under my blanket and rocking back and forth. <laughs> From a storytelling standpoint, what I thought worked really well about the Jasper reveal If you were a person who didn't already know going into the beginning of this season that Clark finds Jasper in the City of Light because we saw those pictures in January, part of what I found both narratively satisfying and also very frustrating in this episode was that if you remove that piece of information, like if you were an audience member watching this who didn't know that, the reveal is beautifully structured. So it begins at the end of last episode where we get the sort of casual throwaway line that, again, that we weren't sure whether it was a mystery or a plot hole, where Ali reveals to Jaha without elaborating in any detail that she knows that Sinclair is dead. And so we talked a little bit in the last podcast about our speculation that Jasper was the most likely person because we knew that he ends up in the City of Light and that thus there was like a 99% chance that it was him. But also because... Mapping the information that Allie does have and doesn't have at the point where she reveals that makes him the only real plausible candidate. You know, she knows enough to know that Sinclair is dead, but not enough to know that it's Raven who's hacking into um, the Arcadian mainframe. So it sort of plants this little whisper of a premonition of, you know, oh no, is one of the adventure squad chipped. And then all throughout the beginning of this episode, you get these really wonderful shots of Allie in unexpected places that sort of boil down narrower and narrower and narrower 
who it could possibly be. So the first time you see her is when, you know, Clark's in the woods right before she's rescued by Roan, who will come back to in a minute. You know, Roan's back. Hooray. Roan. So you see Allie and you think, oh God, oh God, Allie's in one of the adventure squad. And then right. it's just like a red shirt who was stalking her. And then Roan shoots the guy. And so it's almost kind of like a fake out. You don't necessarily mentally associate that with like Jasper's newly chill attitude, you know, kind of like, she'll be fine. Let her cool off. You know, yeah. So like, so hood of the Rover. Yeah. So like Jasper's kind of altered behavior and the sudden appearance of Allie are introduced side by side. And then immediately you're given a reason to not have to connect them. And then when we end up back in Arcadia, after everyone's hugging goodbye, the rover pulls out of the hangar, and then we see four people left in Arcadia, and we see Allie standing behind them. And then you have Jasper asking what, you know, in hindsight are obviously sort of very nosy questions. But if you didn't know that, what you could be seeing, and I think the way that they wrote it, what we're supposed to believe that it looks like to Monty is this is Jasper sort of trying to make amends. It's like he's trying to make conversation yeah. about what Monty's doing and he's helping him look in the storage room. And and so everything that feels a little fishy, it isn't like creepy, suspicious music or like overly creepy camera shots. It was pretty deftly handled up until the absolute moment where Allie appears in the room with just Jasper and Monty, and then you see her talking and you realize she's talking to Jasper, and it takes us a while to get there. And so the suspense, the pacing, the structure, you know, the kind of like, and then there were none sort of element of slowly whittling down, like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Was actually, I think, in a lot of ways really beautifully subtly handled and so I was very frustrated watching it that I knew in January that it was going to be Jasper yeah if you knew that which a lot of people did you know because they leaked those pictures then the whole thing just felt so like it's Jasper it's Jasper it's Jasper it's Jasper and so that lovely scene with Monty you know, where they look like they're finally sort of reconciling. I think their goal there was the kind of like painful irony, which they got, right? But it was also just frustrating and a little bit sad watching it and knowing, you know, like this isn't a shock. We didn't get to have that moment of like, oh, Jasper and Monty. And then like, oh my God, what's happening? It was just like, this isn't real. This isn't real. This isn't real. With everything that they've built up between those two characters as well. Right, right. And those two characters really, really needing that conversation. Yeah. You know, it just was like so heartbreaking that when it happened it wasn't real and not heartbreaking I don't think in the way that's satisfying you know that's like sad right 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 yeah cathartic you know like in that way where like you can have your heart broken by a tv show right and it's great and this isn't really that of all the interactions that we've had where something emotionally significant happens between two parties where one is chipped and the other one doesn't know it, the Murphy and Amori scene, the Kane and Abby yeah. scene, of all of those moments, this was the one that I actually found the most upsetting. Up until this episode, I've been exceptionally happy with Jasper's arc, which is in some ways, I think, a minority opinion. There's been a lot of sort of like, Jasper's so annoying, Jasper's really frustrating to watch, which I think is deliberate. I think that they weren't shying away from how ugly grief and PTSD are and really like letting him go there, which that was great. And so it felt like it was really building towards Jasper being in this sort of pit of 
darkness and despair that tempts him into taking the chip and then pulling himself out of that because of his love for his friends, because of his love for Raven, his desire to help. The other thing I liked about that, about the way that that played out over the season is that it showed that although Jasper is fucked up, although he is psychologically really struggling terribly, he hasn't lost his intelligence. Yeah. He hasn't lost <clears throat> his sense of right and wrong. He hasn't lost mm-hmm. his sense of loyalty to his friends. Yeah. You know, so like even when Jasper was a mess, he was able to recognize that Allie was a threat. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that this was a bad thing. This was not a solution. That what he needed to do was pull together with his friends, some of whom he still didn't know how to deal with. Right. To fight against this common enemy. I agree with you. I think Jasper's arc has been really well written and Devin Bostic has been killing it. He has been so good all season. Like, I mean, the whole cast has been amazing this season. Yeah. But Devin has really been fantastic. Yeah. You know, in scenes where they needed someone to like punch those emotions home. He did it every time, you know. Yeah, every time. We've talked about Jasper a bunch and how important he is, you know, and his grief is. I think it's really, it was really powerful to see Jasper as a character who is struggling with grief and depression and PTSD with a sort of complicated grief that comes with losing someone violently and suddenly and still being, you know, functional and contributing. Yes. And having an important role and not losing everything that made him Jasper and not losing everything that made him the good human being that he was, right? Like they didn't portray his grief as crazy. You know, it was like, it was difficult and unpleasant, but it wasn't unhinged. It was unusually well handled because Mm. they let him stay in it. Most TV shows, and we see this with Clark, grief is such a difficult emotion for everyone. It's difficult Mm -hmm. to feel and it's really difficult to watch. Nobody knows how to deal with it, you know? And so I think most TV shows are afraid to actually depict grief as it happens, which is to say as a long-term, slow process of two steps forward and one step back. Most TV shows, they want to kind of be like, well, you're sad for two episodes and then it's over. And like Clark kind of suffers from that sometimes. Bellamy suffers from that sometimes. But with Jasper, they actually dwelt in it. And I felt like that was so important. I totally agree with you. It was like in some ways, the stories that they were not necessarily giving themselves the space to tell with like every single other character. They sort of let Jasper in some ways kind of be like the avatar of that for all of them in a way that I really liked. And I also felt like really setting up sort of a beautiful parallel with him kind of, you know, finding his own path side by side with Raven. Raven's journey really being about understanding that an injury does not limit her. You know, like that when, like when Abby tells her, like, you can still be useful and Raven is so indignant because she takes that as being told that you've lost something permanently and you're no longer yourself, you know? And so Raven realizing that it's her mind and it's who she is as a person, which has nothing to do with whether she has one or two working legs that makes her an able contributor to the group who is clearly being sort of set up to be the hero, you know? And so what I liked about Jasper was I felt like we had sort of a really nuanced exploration of physical disability, a really nuanced exploration of mental illness. And these two people, you know, who we've known since the very beginning of this show, going through this journey and coming out of it at their side in a way where like they're heroes in a way that doesn't erase what happened to them. They're not getting where they got to like 
in spite of, you know, like it's sort of, it's part of like, this is just sort of who you are now, you know? And so what I found a real bummer in tonight's in tonight's <laughs> episode. The best way to put, yeah, put the Jasper a real, just a real bummer, bummer. <laughs> is that if our interpretation of Jasper's arc was the arc that they intended to give us, then what happens tonight is the rug is completely pulled out from under us with the explanation that they give for why after all of the things that he has seen and all of the growth that he has experienced, that the motivation for him taking the chip is so unimaginably thin that it very nearly sort of like defies believability. After him watching Raven go through like alley withdrawal, after him watching her forget Finn after watching like a creepy murder robot take up residence in her mind that makes her behave in this unimaginably cruel and violent and self-destructive way. And after sort of us watching Jasper make what felt like a really intentional choice that, again, like we've been sort of talking about all season that like is the theme of the season accepting painful reality over blissful illusion because you finally come to understand that it isn't real right and so we were watching jasper sort of move through that arc in a way that was really compelling and powerful you know and then we get this reveal that he has taken the chip and then sort of then of course then the next question is like okay so how and when and why and the reasoning was just kind of like we were on luna's rig and i realized that like everything sucks and i didn't want to feel like that anymore So, like, I just took it, you know, and because we didn't see it happen, you know, we didn't we didn't get it to be a moment where we watched him go through that process of making a decision. So it all felt a little retconned and hand wavy regardless. It was like, do they just need to get him into the city of light? And they kind of didn't really care how they did it. Part of why I found that sort of upsetting was it feels like that completely undercuts all of his growth and is sort of a terrible message to send about the way that you cope with depression. He has sort of moved through and learned to live with his grief as a sort of part of his life and has found a purpose and a community and is an active agent working with the team. And then it was like, well, but I was sad and I kind of just like couldn't deal. But it wasn't even that. That was like the weirdest part about it is what he, because he said he was like, I was on the rig and I was talking with this girl, Shay. And I forgot, I, for the first time, I, I forgot about Maya for a minute. Or he wasn't thinking about Maya for a second. And then that was the thing that was like, and then I was like, oh, I should just take the chip. Well, and that's, and what I did, what I, like, what? what? Yeah. And what I, what I didn't understand was it's like, are we meant to take from that, that he was like, I forgot about Maya for a second. And that sensation of forgetting about Maya was so pleasant that I wanted that all the time. I or, guess. Like, I guess. Like, what a terrible thing. Like, that just like, so goes against everything that they've been doing with Jasper and his grief all along. Cause Jasper yeah. was the one who refused to forget. He didn't want yeah. to forget Maya. He yeah. wouldn't let anybody else forget Maya. You yeah. know, like, Jasper's struggle with grief was that he did not want to stop grieving because right. stopping grieving would mean not thinking about Maya all the time. He wasn't willing to, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. he, like the way that he clung to the person that he lost was 
by remembering her and by grieving her, you know? So like if it felt sort of like for the way that he had talked about things early in the season, it felt sort of like weirdly out of character for him to be like, you know, I forgot about her and it was so great. I just decided to take the key. And then that doesn't even make any sense. He talked to her to Shay for like five minutes, right? Right. Way earlier in the episode, like he freaks out and tells Shay to run from Allie. Yeah. And is like fighting Allie. After that conversation happened. Right, right. So like, so the timeline within the episode also doesn't really work. Unless they caught him and then he's like, oh, oh well. It's very flimsy and hand wavy because I think like on multiple levels, that explanation just like doesn't really work logically or like emotionally. If they had decided that's how and when Jasper gets chipped to be revealed in the next episode, a at least I think vaguely more plausible way to handle it is to somewhat flip-flop around the events that happen where, you know, Luna's being waterboarded. The thing that almost worked, the seed that they started to plant that I actually thought was really interesting, except for that they didn't quite stick the landing, is the idea of Jasper being the person who says out loud, we're the bad guys in this story. Like if Shay died, and then it's like Jasper being like, again, like we show up someplace that was peaceful and we bring destruction and this sweet girl that I liked died and it's our fault and kind of like fuck everything. Because what that would do, like if that if that was why, like if the motivation was just that he like, he's kind of like, fuck this again after Shay dies because it triggers something Maya related. Like yeah. it's about remembering he kind of Maya. Says that. He, kind he kind of says, of it. says that. Yeah. But, but like it doesn't really, but again, like I think, Okay, like, so I think there's a couple of things happening here simultaneously. One side of it has to do with the way that they executed this because it was supposed to be a big, shocking reveal, right. like, twist. So there's, that's one side of it. And then the other side of it, I think, has to do with all of the unfortunate implications that come with the choice that they made. Like, you're right, I agree with you. If the, the point is supposed to be that it wasn't really Shay... It was like kind of Maya, but then also kind of like the scales fell off his eyes on Luna's rig if they as they did for everyone. Mm -hmm. And what he realized is that we are monsters, you know, everywhere we go, death comes, I can't escape this. Then okay, I get someone reaching that point. And I get it being Jasper. Right. But I think you're right. Like we needed to see what we needed to see was we need to hear him say something like that. Or I think also like, I mean, Jasper is in still in some ways a kind of like the most innocent of them all. Yeah. And, I, and I could see Jasper being someone who having to watch Luna be waterboarded would be something that would, that would cause that kind of snap in him. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like Jasper having to watch that kind of torture again, yeah. but that would have required them to sort of focus more on Jasper's reactions to what was happening in that room. If we sort of saw him growing more and more distressed as Luna was being waterboarded and, you know, like, and flu crew people were being killed and they brought in the right. girl and there's this kind of like growing sense of like like jasper's just like getting more and more and more upset and like saying oh my god what have i done and then you know like suddenly he's calm the piece that's missing is that like part of jasper's baggage with matt weather he spent he so long totally convinced that he could stop it and it was totally misguided and it was completely not based in any real measure of reality like it was never going to be possible for jasper to have stopped cage wallace but jasper convinced himself for yeah. months and months that he could and that's why he was so angry at clark so the idea of that again feeling of like anger and rage and helplessness sort of like if we saw it triggering 
like he's been here again and it fucked him up so badly. Jasper wasn't chained up in the room while they were doing the bone marrow extractions last season he yeah. hasn't had to watch someone be tortured yeah and he was convinced you know, he could have stopped it because he, he didn't quite know what it looks like exactly yeah so like to have jasper chained up and helpless and watching people be tortured because he and his friends arrived and brought this right i mean i get that i get that that works way better i think as an explanation rather than like i talked to this girl and i forgot maya for a second and it was so super great to forget maya that i was like wouldn't this be great to do this all the time but but i think okay so like here's the thing so all of that would have been great the reason they could not do it that way is because it was supposed to be a big secret that jasper got chipped there we no. were not supposed to have any inkling. We were supposed to think like that's the whole Harper misdirect last episode was meant to make us think that it was somebody back in Arcadia. Right. And not Jasper. And not on the rig. Yeah. And not on the rig. So they couldn't show Jasper becoming more and more distressed and then like suddenly being calm because we would have known right away that he was chipped. Right. And they couldn't have him talking about any of this stuff explicitly because that would have given the game away right away. Right. And then in this episode, because Jasper is chipped when he's giving the explanation, right. so he can't be upset about it then. He's not going to be able from his chipped position. Like, we don't even know how much of that is true. You right. know what I mean? Like, we don't have any reason to believe those motivations as he described them weren't the case. Right. But he can't convey them in a way that is emotionally convincing because his character is chipped at the time. Right. And so what that means is that we, as an audience, we never will get to see Jasper's breaking point. Yeah. We will never get yeah. to experience it emotionally. That's what it is. That's same, what it is. It's the same yeah. problem that we had with the fucking, we needed an election episode and we yes. needed more than a, than a 45 second scene of Bellamy doing a shot with Pike and changing his mind. You point at the screen and be like, look at the places where we told you what was happening. Check, check, check. But none of those in this case as well, like with those earlier ones, they are not emotionally persuasive because we don't experience the character making that decision in a way that allows right. us to sort of like understand what they're going through and what motivated them to make that choice. It's tell not show, right? When Clark went in like 20 seconds from wanting to kill Lexa to deciding to like not right. kill her and stay, it is the job of the writer to like bring the audience along on board. We didn't get that for a range of reasons, you know, in all those different situations. A really vital piece of what motivates these characters was missing in that moment. And so the thing that happens afterwards doesn't ever feel emotionally earned because we didn't watch you get to that place where you made that decision. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So like for Clark with, with forgiving Lexa, we're told that she spent a week in that room and we can infer that she probably did a lot of thinking during that time and might've changed how she felt and whatever. And then also like in between the scene where she puts a knife to Lexa's throat and then the scene where she like decides to ally with her, we can infer that she's done something that changed her mind. But because we never got to see that happen, we didn't get to go on that journey with her. It sort of rings hollow. Yeah. You know, they're asking you to kind of like intellectually accept what the decision that was made rather than emotionally, which is right. like, this is a TV show, not an academic paper, you know, right. like you need to be able to sort of like emotionally access the characters in these, not all the time, but like in these really, really key, important decision-making moments, Yeah, which like now we have like, Bellamy and Clark and Jasper all having those humongous character moments being kind of like glossed over 
it's not a happy pattern. They made a decision to sacrifice that stuff for, for Jasper here in service of what they thought was going to be a big and juicy enough twist that it would make up for it, which might have been true. I don't really think so. I think it was a bad call no matter what. But it would have worked way, way better if, again, they hadn't leaked those set photos. This is so the thing that, that makes me crazy. So that we all knew what was coming. So, like, the twist wasn't even a twist. It was just like, oh. Yeah. Well, maybe I will find out why he went into the, oh, okay. Well, well and then, and the same thing with, <laughs> with the fact that that it's like, what's going to happen in the City of Light? It's like, she's going to meet Lexa. We all know she's going to meet Lexa. We all know yeah. Lexa's yeah. in there. We've known since yeah. January Lexa's going to be in there. We know, like, half of what's going to happen with her, like. We know that some of the flames going to get hooked up and they're all going to be fighting each other because we all saw the videos and the pictures right. and everything else. So like half your story is gone. The suspense is gone. Structurally, it was set up as though the big thing that they wanted us to get was a sort of creeping sense of the Trojan horse thing again. This sort of sense of menace yeah, right. of enemies within yeah. that you can't trust the people that you think that you can trust. And and that's a great sci-fi story to tell and it is high stakes and suspenseful but that i think that in this particular situation it was really creepy you know and and there were a lot of things about the jasper stuff i think that did work really well but i do think that like how we how we got there you know was spoiled by both this this sort of increasingly nonsensical in hindsight pr stunt with the set photos but also we've been tied in so deeply to jasper's emotional stakes and that all kind of went out the window what i really liked about what we saw of Chip Jasper that I thought could have been such an interesting, compelling moment. The way that it paralleled what was happening at the same time in Polis was I really loved creepy zombie Jasper outside the door of engineering while Monty and Raven are trying to work, kind of casually running down the list of how all their friends have died. And kind of coming at it from the perspective of, which, and again, and this gets into the, like, how much is Allie and how much is the real person? But, like, we know that on some level that this part of it is real, that Jasper feels all of those deaths and that he's giving us something that we got a little bit in that great Bellark scene in 305 where Bellamy lashing out at Clark reminds us that they've been at war since they hit the ground and that that's really emotionally present for him even when it isn't in the narrative that he's never stopped thinking about all those people that died their experience of the ground is of never-ending conflict and never-ending fear and violence you know like this is how they've felt and they've never stopped feeling that way and particularly i think also in this sort of like really kind of heartbreaking juxtaposition of those flashbacks that we got a couple episodes ago where we saw all these people again you know and and hearing him sort of like go down the list of all their names so and so death by clark so and so death by clark interestingly he got a couple of them wrong which i wonder i'm like i wonder if that was delivered if it was never said like mystery or plot hole (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, mystery or plot hole. Another one for this week is, um, did he say Dax was death by Clark? He did. Because the writers forgot that it was actually death by Bellamy or because Jasper didn't know or because I don't know. Yeah, and I, I suspect that we'll never get an answer to that. And the most I likely thing that. is the writers forgot. But I also like the idea that Allie only knows about this what 
Jasper knows. So the idea that Jasper in some ways is an unreliable narrator would be an interesting thing to mind. And also that, that again, like that some of it's potentially tactical, the same way that we see Raven, the tactics that Raven uses with Clark and with Bellamy and with Jasper are different and strategic. Some of the things that she says are mean because they're true. Some of them are mean because they're false. And some of them are mean because the person she's talking to thinks that's true. And so the different sort of ways that information is manipulated based on what the intended impact is on the person is the way that Allie is sort of feeding these lines to Jasper to deliver them intended in some way to, like if her goal is to distract Monty and Raven from helping Clark, then constant reminders that Clark is sort of like, the bringer of death, which Jasper has made comments about more than once, you know, in right. the last couple episodes. Well, I think this, I don't know how many specific answers we're going to get, but I'm really still fascinated by this sort of like the question of how Allie and human brains interact. Yes. And as long as your brain is alive, you know, like what parts of your emotional experience are still yours, are still not a part of Allie. Right. But it definitely seems like as we see more and more people who we know really well in the City of Light, like Abby. You know, like, Abby and Kane are, like, themselves on overdrive. You know, like, right. like, like Abby is absolutely, still recognizably Abby. You know, she's just, like, she's, like, evil, you know, sociopath Abby. Mm-hmm. But, like, the, the methods that she uses are methods that Abby would use with, like, the, the medical instruments, you know. And, yeah, like, and the way very that she precise Clark and is, deft um, kind of torture. Yeah. And, you know, and the way that she touches Clark, like, the way that she sort of strokes her hair and, like, soothes her and is all sweet and then says something terrible. It's not like everybody who's in the City of Light now, is that, like, they're all the same. They're right. not. So Jasper, you know, what we see of Jasper is that that is definitely the Jasper way of trying to manipulate Monty. Part of it is because he knows Monty better than anyone. Right. Anyone alive, you know? And so, like, of course, Jasper knows all of Monty's leverage points. Right. But also, Jasper, like, it's all very in character for Jasper because Jasper has always been about his friends, you know, like if anybody was going to remember every single person, every single one of the hundred who died and how they died, it's going to be Jasper. And we Mm. saw that like last season, the way that he stepped up so fast to become kind of leader of the delinquents in Mount Weather, you know, it's not because he's like strategically the smartest. It's because he's the one who, once he was convinced, you know, of course, that there was a problem, like Monty knew there was something fishy before Jasper did, right. but Monty is much more sort of like reserved and tactical. Right. And Jasper is just kind of like, there's a threat to my people, you know, yeah. like yeah. we got to fight, you know, like Jasper is much more Gryffindor. He, kind yeah. Of. He's reckless. Um, he's impulsive. Having him make the kind of emotional appeals that he does by bringing up all these people who died is very Jasper. Like you said, the fact that he, he he keeps coming back to death by Clark, death by Clark, also very Jasper because Jasper has never fully let go yeah. of his anger at Clark for being Juan Hedda. And then also even before that, you know, like before the reveal and the way he talks to Monty, you know, the way he sort of like very delicately talks about, I'm happy for you. You know, I'm happy. The way that he talks about like, all he really wants is peace and he's happy and happiness and he's mm-hmm. happy that Monty found that, you know, and there's something really bittersweet about that scene 
Because even though it's chipped Jasper and he's manipulating Monty and trying to like figure out how to foil their plan, I feel like with Jasper, there there is still enough of Jasper there. You know, like yeah. what he said was convincingly enough what Jasper would say if Jasper had actually reached that position of peace. And it makes it even sadder, you know, because like, because you could imagine this conversation happening without the chip but it does make me think like okay jasper's still in there you know like there's there's a little piece of jasper that's in in the driver's seat obviously Allie is letting that piece be in the driver's seat because she knows that what she needs is what jasper is the way you know is jasper's ability to kind of like leverage human relationships this is what Allie's like how to use right but it does suggest that there is still something something of you there when you're in the city of light that can't be totally reduced to Allie. And so I really, really, really hope I I'm sort of despairing of Jasper surviving the finale. I hope that he does. I hope he does too. But I really hope that at the very least we get a moment or two of, uh, of D chip Jasper. Yeah. Where he gets to actually like have that resolution with Monty. That's what I really, I think that's my, my big, my big fear about this new kind of confounding direction that Jasper's storyline sort of all of a sudden took, and maybe this is we can pop over and talk about Monty and also Raven, you know, from yes. here. But if sort of as we predicted at the beginning of the season, if Jasper like, you know, goes into the city of light and Clark is shutting it down and everything sort of, you know, is collapsing around him and he decides to stay, he dies inside the city of light. Then what that means is that we never, ever, ever get any real Jasper Monty resolution. And that feels yeah. like such a betrayal of yeah. their friendship. It felt so clear all along that like their growing sort of estrangement after Mount Weather must have been leading up to them both kind of processing this stuff and coming back to a kind of newer, like more complex but also maybe ultimately more authentic relationship with each other with Monty now having been through a really wrenching loss that parallels Jasper's Jasper being being potentially in some kind of a position to like sort of flip the script and offer Monty support the way Monty has been sort of trying to do with Jasper it all felt like this is going to be so satisfying, you know? Um, Yeah. If it all lines up the way it looks like it's lining up and he dies in the city of light, then he never gets that. That would break my heart. And that that, would break my heart not, And again, and not in the narratively satisfying way. Like Like, what a waste. It feels kind of sick. Yeah, yeah. And and it feels so brutally unfair to Monty after the couple of days that he's had. He's to kill his mom twice. And then if his best friend dies after like, the reunion and the like sort of gesture reconciliation that Jasper finally, finally, finally offers after what at this point has been like, you know, months of yeah. estrangement. And then it's like, JK, I'm going to stab you. I just, so I don't know. And cause Monty, like, Oh, I love him so much. I want I only good things for Monty. And he is, the best. he is the best. And one of the few sort of genuinely bright lights in this very dark episode is him and Raven being tech geniuses together who are now in a position where they're forced to like use their genius brains to improvise. And so of of all the things that I am 
unequivocally crazy pants excited to see happen next week is how the two of them are going to figure out now that they have no way to communicate with Clark and Bellamy and everybody and are sort of potentially in some degree on their own, but with access to all of the code to get into the city of light, how they're going to do that. And Harper too, who is alive. Thank God. Cause we saw thank her in the trailer. God. And we know, I think there was a shot of her with Raven and Monty. Yes. Right? So, yeah. So, yeah. so they, yeah. they must in some way they knock out Jasper or whatever, and she gets yeah. inside. So that's yes. all, that's all good and fine. But thank God. cause I was so worried too. I was like this whole time I was just like, did they have Monty sleep with Harper? to kill her so that it was like a bigger deal when she dies. I was just, which is going to be so mad. I've been so <laughs> mad partly because I love Harper and don't want her yeah. to die. And partly because but, like, we don't need people to fuck other people for us to like have a big, no, big deal when they she's, die. She's Harper. Like, so, so, okay. So, so the two unnecessary sex scenes to create emotional stakes this season are Monty and Harper and Murphy and Antari. Because both of those, you could completely extract from the storyline they were in and everything would be the same. Antari would still be like the total worst, although now she's basically nothing, which is a bizarre choice we can get to when we talk about Polis. But we didn't need her to be made more evil for her storyline to make sense. She had already gouged a dude's eyes out. Yeah, she was super fucked up. Like we were all like- We did not need her to rape Murphy in like a weirdly sort of- like maybe it's sexy maybe it's rape kind of right way. and i also felt the same way about like like monty's so cute and harper's so cute and and i and they're cute together and like i'm totally willing to get on board and ship it although it did feel like it came out of nowhere except yeah. that if they're not setting them up in some way like to be a couple like where the relationship's going to continue to like pay off uh, which again like i'm fine with if that's where yeah. it goes if that happens but- she lives and they're happy together then I'm like yeah hey, totally down with it yeah Harper and, yeah Harper exactly and I'm so glad an Asian man is not being desexualized and he's getting yeah. a romantic storyline that's totally fantastic. oh yeah so down yeah. with that but if she dies in the next episode then we're in a position where somebody made a determination that we would care more about losing one of our remaining core team delinquents if she slept with somebody and that's a really ugly message that I don't like because yes. Harper is like from the beginning, you know, she's been in the core yeah. team and she's been getting fantastic material this season that doesn't require her to be paired in a relationship with anybody just as like a member of the hero adventure squad who's had some like really lovely moments and some really great storylines and great material with lots of different characters, you know? So even if she had never slept with Monty, Monty would be devastated if something terrible happened to her, especially at the hands of Jasper, who he knows would feel awful if he knew what he did. So I'm waiting for that payoff. I'm actively rooting on it turning into just like, they're going to be the cute new couple in season four, and it'll be like cute and precious and comic relief, and I'll be like, aces. Yeah. Let's be optimistic. Like, maybe like... Raven and Monty and Harper are all going to be in that room all next episode. You know, they're going to figure out a way. They'll, they'll fix the radio so that they could talk to the people in Polis. Or maybe, you know, like like Raven will be just hacking into the code and she'll see Clark go in there. And this is how they'll be able to talk to Clark while she's in the City of Light. You know, so like maybe that's how they'll be able to Oh, yeah. Maybe she can communicate in some way directly through the code with well, Clark. Theoretically, she could talk to Clark. When Clark is in the City of Light, she could talk to her the same way that Monty talked to his mother. So oh, that yeah. uh-huh. Clark's voice would be like synthesized through the computer and then they would type back. If Raven's trying to get in on one end and she happens to sort of like encounter Clark yeah. going in on the other end, then that could be a way that 
they would be able to communicate and then Raven would be, would be able to sort of like get in, help them sort of do whatever they need to do with the flame and right, tell right. Clark how to get into the Citadel and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of suspect that that's what will happen. Yeah. So like maybe, you know, like maybe Raven and Monty and Harper will be in there the whole time uh-huh. and like Jasper will be outside and the big stakes will be like them finding out that as I still kind of suspect that people who are still connected to the city of light and or who are being controlled by Allie will die when they take out the Citadel, right? Right. When they, when they flip the kill switch. So then you have, you know, Jasper outside potentially still talking to Monty and Harper. And the stakes there would be that, like, they have to make the decision to pull the kill switch knowing that they're going to kill Jasper when that happens. Right. You know, and so they have somebody standing there whose life they have to accept they're going to end. And possibly, I mean, I could also see this happening that like Raven said something about like all the bracelets were smashed until she got there. Maybe they'll build another EMP mm-hmm. and EMP Jasper, but that would be really tricky. They would have to like take him someplace far away from the computers. So there's like a bunch of different ways it could go where it would totally just be like Raven, Monty, Tech, super squad trying to figure out how to take out Allie without killing Jasper and like Harper's kind of coming along as like the gun toting guard, you know? So like Monty has to like take Jasper out to EMPM or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and Harper's just there to guard him and they all live. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Monty and Harper make out in front of Jasper who says something, you know, sort of like snarky and funny in his Jasper way at the end. And we ride off into the sunset happily, which will definitely not happen. It's- but maybe no one, that's uh i really like your version of this i wish that you were writing the story but jason rothenberg wrote episode 316 so i'm not optimistic yeah um so if we do a head count of like who's left that we care about who's still chips like not counting abby because they clearly from the trailers from next week they use the bracelet and the one emp blast that they have on her so by my count of like characters who were emotionally invested in who are still chipped, we have Kane and Jasper and Jackson and, and Emery. And, and yeah, and Emery, I don't feel particular fondness for Jaha, but I think that having him just sort of get casually shot by Bellamy is unlikely to be the end of his arc. Watching this for the second time, especially, it looked to me like Bellamy shot him in the arm. Jaha sort of like throws his arm back and then Bellamy goes over and hits him, knocks him unconscious with his gun. Yeah. So they so probably I'm, tie like, him up or something. Yeah. yeah but I don't so think he's, he's not dead. dead. Yeah. They're going to have to cover his eyes and plug up his ears so that yeah. Allie can't know what they're doing. But So that's it that I can think of. I really don't think Kane's going to die, but I also feel like any situation where some of them get out and some of them don't, knowing that we don't have any more bracelets left, I don't know. Like, they could all die. How would anybody else? How's anyone else going to get out of this? Yeah. Yeah. Unless they figure out another way. So Kane and Indra are like buried under some rubble somewhere. Right. Who else is down there? Octavia was climbing up. Yeah, every everyone, it was just Kane and Indra. Yes, yeah, so the bomb took out everybody else and blocked off the hallway. And then they also, the other deal was that they were going to try to like destroy the ladder after them, like after they got up to the top. So the awesome plan of we'll figure out how to get back down later. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Oh, not, you guys. Like, yeah. Plan making this season has been oh. getting increasingly shaky. <laughs> and, and bless Murphy, the pure pragmatist sort of being like, 
is anyone going to ask the obvious question about how we get back down this tower? Um, right. And Andrew's like, we'll deal with that later. And it's just like, oh, yeah. And Murphy's like, yep. And Murphy's like, this is what it's been like all week, guys. That my life always yeah. sucks as hard as it can. Oh, <laughs> yes. Well, maybe this is a good transition over to the polis half of our characters. Yes. Um, okay. Let's talk about Roan. Yes. Let's let's um, do that. We can sort of transition into Bellamy and Octavia. Yeah. At all, but Roan. Oh, I laughed. I mean, it was like partly just delight when (laughs) when Roan shoots the alley guy in the neck with his bow, and there's like Mm -hmm. that shot over him, like standing in the in the trees, like holding his bow. Yes, like a hero. And I was like, man, it looks like he just like wandered, you know, half a mile across Vancouver from the set of a completely unrelated movie. I was just like, yo, I'm here to play. (laughs) He he popped by on a brief visit from Game of Thrones. Exactly. That's what it looked like. Or like Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Hey guys, we're just kind of over there doing a Canadian Hobbit. I'm just going to sort of drop in and say hello. (laughs) You know what? I'm not mad at it. I'm not mad at all. Like you do, you you wear those furs, you fire those arrows, like I was just I knew from the obviously from the promo stuff and from the you know the photos that came out last week like I knew he was going to be in it but that was such a satisfying delightful sudden appearance and I love his character so much you know he really is one of the few characters I think we met in this show who is who is truly presented as morally neutral like he's not like he's not a bad guy but whether he's on our side or not really depends on sort of like the perspective and the circumstance. Initially, when we first, you know, meet him, he's the enemy. He's being hired to, you know, basically kidnap Clark for Lexa. But then, like, he has a chance to kill, you know, Bellamy and doesn't. Like, like we get these sort of flashes all along where it's like Roan's behavior is shaped by circumstance. You know, he's a lot like Murphy, I think, in, in, in some ways, you know. As a D&D alignment, he'd be like, what, like lawful neutral? Lawful, I would, I wouldn't even say lawful necessarily. I, I think. Like true neutral? I think he would say true neutral, yeah. Because he's perfectly willing to fuck shit up, but he's not destructive for the sake of destruction. And what I liked the yeah. most about, my yeah. favorite Roan moment this episode, maybe ever, which, even though it was like, it was so sort of tiny and so subtle, but I absolutely loved the moment between him and Clark and Bellamy in the brig where they're explaining to him the very kind of Cliff's Notes version of the story of like who Allie is and how she works. Like they're telling him something that like based on what we know of grounders and technology must be so wildly unbelievable to anybody else. You know, like, like think about like Indra's reaction, but that Rowan is just like, all right, let's go. He and Clark aren't friends. They're never going to be friends. But that the really precise, deft way that they've sort of like, in their very few interactions all season, built this trust with each other where like, he doesn't have to like her to hear her say this thing that sounds totally crazy. And he's like, I believe you and I'm in. He's a true pragmatist. He really is. He's like anti-idealist right it doesn't really matter to him or he is not concerned with what should be or any particular like code of beliefs or like structure of the world he's worried about what is Mm -hmm. and how it affects 
what he wants to make happen or what his goals are. Yeah. And, you know, his goals are also very sort of like pragmatic. They're very practical. I, you know, he is the Ice Nation King. He wants an Ice Nation commander. Yep. So like whatever is going to let him achieve that goal, he's not particularly attached to the kind of like quasi spiritual beliefs that someone like Indra, like, like those beliefs really structure Indra's worldview and her sense of self. Right. In a profound way. And I think for Rowan, that's not true. It doesn't really matter. You know, like you get the feeling that Rowan would be somebody who, if Indra is somebody is a warrior, um, part of whose identity as a warrior is kind of actuated by this set of very deep cultural kind of religious beliefs, like what enable what, what makes her believe that being who she is is right is that set of beliefs. For Rowan, it's not that at all. Right. You know, he's like, he does it because he's good at it. Because that's what he was raised to do. Because that is the means by which he can achieve the ends that he wants. Right. He doesn't need it to be licensed by any kind of like sense of this is what is big R right. You know, in the way that someone yeah. like I think Indra does. Well, and I think so it even- makes him a really, really interesting character. And it makes him another one of those kind of like refreshing sort of like foil characters or disruptor characters. Yeah. Because we have a lot of, you know, almost, almost all of our other characters on the show are really, really concerned about doing what is kind of like morally right or right, mm-hmm. you know, in the in the big sense, which is great. Like, I love that. But it does wind up being really like sort of refreshing sometimes to have a character who comes in and is, you know, kind of unencumbered by those right. issues. Right. And it makes me want to see Rowan and Luna meet. Because yes. I was just like thinking that. The yeah. opposite ends of the spectrum. Yes. You know, like, she, like her decisions are totally freighted with these very, very deep, moral beliefs and everything that she chooses to do and not what to do is informed by that. And Rowan is just like the complete opposite, you yeah. know? So they would be a fascinating pair to oh see. My God. I would love if we got that in season four. I'd be so happy. Yeah, that'd be great. I think, and for that reason as well, he's like very handy character to the plot because, yeah. you know, they don't have to spend any time being like, no, but really it had to be like, wait, what? No, this is like antithetical to my worldview. He's just like, okay, so yeah. this is the problem and here's how we're going to solve it. The plan twists and he comes up with a fix, you right. know, like, like the yes. way, like getting yeah. to watch Rowan thinking on his feet to get them into Polis. Like it was very satisfying to watch because he is like, he's so smart and he's so pragmatic He's like the consummate soldier, you know, he is yeah. very, he is always completely aware of his tactical situation Yeah, and he is able to sort of like calculate best possible strategy for any given situation on the fly. Yeah. He's better at that than just about any other character that we've encountered, which is what makes him so effective. We usually have characters who are like, will only kill you if they absolutely have to and they get really wrecked about it or like, we'll just kill you because they can. Yeah. And Roan's like... Well, I could, but I don't need to, so I won't. You right. know, and it's not like I would I would do it because it's like morally wrong. It's just like, well, why would I if I didn't? Well, have like to? and in in the <laughs> I mean, in the premiere, like when he tells Clark, stay down and we're gonna like sneak past these guys, and then she makes a run for it, and he's like, Well, now I have to kill him. Like, thanks yeah, right. a lot. He's like, Well, that's a pain in the ass. Like yeah, nobody yeah. needs to die here because it's more trouble than it's worth. You yeah, know? he's like, like <laughs> I told you, stay down, dumb dumb. Now I gotta go kill yeah, right. those guys. I'll be right back. You know, uh, like he's so exasperated. Yeah, yeah, and it's and he's not quite callous. He has amoral. Yeah, he's not. He's not amoral. I wouldn't describe him as somebody who like doesn't have a conscience, but he's so guided by pragmatism in a way that is sort of comfortingly straightforward. You know, like he sort of reads the room, he makes an assessment, and it's just like he's so sensible. And it is so (laughs) full of people who do incredibly emotionally fraught 
oftentimes yeah. counterintuitive like, things. Like, I love you, but such a fucking drama queen. It's, yes, yeah. It's really nice to have a character who is, like, the anti-drama queen. Yeah, like, um, where, like, Roan just sort of walks in and he's just like, look, you gotta give me the flame, otherwise our trap has no bait. So Clark does it, you know, and then it's like, you're gonna have to look at my prisoner, you know, and then when he realizes that, you know, when they're surrounded by, like, the zombie army and he plays the all-cut Clark's throat, like, and you're gonna call my bluff because, you know, you need her card. Part of why I like screamed out loud and had to stop my DVR when Kane rolls up and just shoots him in the chest is because like this is the first scrape we have seen Roan not be able to get himself out of by being so crafty and tactical and like always kind of finding the way out. Like he's one of those like always lands on his feet kind of people. And the one thing that he didn't predict in that scenario is that like, they do need Clark alive, but they don't need him alive. It's important that we did not see him die. Like they dragged him yeah, off yeah, yeah, alive yeah. and no yeah. one said he's dead. So, I mean, I don't think he's coming back next episode probably, but I think they left that open-ended and so... Because it's confirmed that he's back for season four. He said, maybe said it somewhere in an okay. interview, but it hasn't been like officially confirmed. Okay. But it definitely seems like the door is open. So yeah. like, Roan is not dead. I will not accept it until I see his body burn. Exactly, yes. <laughs> My theory actually with both Rowan and with Indra is that I think that we're going to be left with some ambiguity where it could go either way because both of those actors were on shows where at the time they were filming this, they were still on those shows. And both Zach McGowan's character on Black Sails and Adina Porter's character on Underground, I believe, have since been killed off. So they're both like free to come back. I would love to live in a world where they were both season regulars or at least oh, we're like, yeah. we're more sort of substantial recurring characters yeah. next year as we're sort of dealing with like how they kind of rebuild what this post-Alley grounder civilization looks like. Particularly, I think, as a way to get Rowan in the same room with Luna and just watch them like (laughs) disagree about everything would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yeah. The other great thing about Rowan, I think, which makes him really, you know, like I think that kind of like mitigates the way that he could come across as a kind of like cold-blooded tactical killer, but doesn't, is that he's so clearly very, very emotionally intelligent. You know, it's like, it's obvious throughout, you know, like early in the season when we saw him with Clark and then this episode, it's very, very apparent that he is very good at reading people. Yes. You know, like he's very good at sort of observing the people around him and inferring things about them and about their relationships. Like he's aware of it, but he doesn't use it as leverage, you know, like he doesn't, he doesn't sort of like use it against people in the way that like his mother did, you know? Right. That's why it's just like so hilarious to like watch him with Bellamy and Clark, you know, in those scenes where he was in prison where they come back and he just like keeps giving those looks like, oh my God, Mm -hmm. like, come Mm -hmm. on you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but he also saw Clark talk to the flame, which is interesting. Uh So I think that's another really interesting thing about, about Roan is that he has an enormous amount of information about the people around him emotionally as well, you know, that right. like could come into play later on. It guides the way that he makes choices, but it isn't ever manipulative. It's just sort of like, like so watching him kind of like looking back and forth from Bellamy to Clark, Bellamy says something and like we cut to Ron kind of giving him a particular look, but we also see him read Jaha and watching him a little bit sort of, I think playing the role of himself. He could come off as cold or unlikable and he doesn't at all. And I think it's because like he comes off like a person who understands people 
really well. And we saw that way back at the beginning when he was presenting a really interesting um, sort of viewpoint that then kind of ultimately a little bit went nowhere. But but that I, you know, I was so interested in the conversation that he had with Clark in Polis when she was still kind of trying to decide whether to trust Lexa, you know, and she's like, Queen Nye wants to just sort of like destroy everything. And he basically is like, if everything that you know about Ice Nation came from Lexa, like, check your sources. Like, you're hearing that from somebody who's biased, you yeah. know? Yeah, and also that um, the conversation that he had with Clark in the cave in 302. Yeah. Where, like, he's been, you know, he's, like, captured her and he's got her gagged. Yeah. You know, and, and like, he's known her for a few hours and they haven't really talked, but he's he's able just from observing her and sort of like the brief conversation that they have, he's able to infer so much about her yeah, and understand so much about her and about what she thinks of herself and kind of like her relationship to her people. So he's so perceptive. Like he understood her so quickly, you know, and so intuitively. And I think we see that play out, you know, in a number of other places. He's so good at kind of intuitively understanding the people and the relationships that he observes yeah. based on, on relatively little data. You know, yeah. he can sort of extrapolate very accurately. He figures out Nyla was lying about Clark yeah. not being there. Like, we keep seeing him correctly assessing people and making the right choices based on being able to predict the thing that they're going to do and how they're going to respond. So it feels, I think, fitting in a way that, like, the only thing that could possibly have taken out Rowan is this enemy intelligence that's totally devoid of human connection. Like, of course, it would have to be somebody and, and under like, Ali's control. Just, like, walking up out of nowhere with a gun and shooting him. You know, like, something right. that he, he actually could not anticipate. He could not have anticipated it, yeah. Because, again, like, it's devoid of that kind of human relationship component and it just broke my heart that it was Kane. I was like, Kane, what are you I doing? Know. I want you guys to be best friends. Like, why, you ruined this. Why yeah. are you back to being like Jaha making Kane into his his? I know. Again, I know. You know. I'm so like, upset. I'm so upset. Ugh, yeah. Jaha, you are the worst. God damn it, Jaha. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. I don't really want him to like get a redemption. I mean, it's so mean to say, like, there's almost no one on the show where I'm like, I don't want you to have a redemption and come back. Like, Pike, I'm like, yay, redemption, come yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Team Jaha, Pike, just yeah. like, nope, I jo- feel I'm like... I'm too this, mad. Yeah. This needs to be the end for you. Right. Part of that is because I feel like in practical terms, what would a plausible season four arc for unshipped yeah. Jaha I can't, I can't picture it. There's, it's like the City of Light has been his storyline for two entire seasons now. Yeah. And so having found it and it having turned him into this destructive monster who hurt and killed so many people, like how much story mileage is there really in like a, you know, broken, humbled, self-loathing Jaha hating himself for the things that he did to all these people? Like how compelling is that? Because also we don't get the same sense with him the way the way the flashbacks began to give us a sense with Pike that he really was a different man before. Like the thing about Pike, yeah. the thing about a redemption arc for Pike is that in some ways I feel like the virtue of those flashbacks that we got two episodes ago, like we watched him kind of like ossify into this harder, angrier, more violent kind of like survivalist version of himself yeah, like the sort yeah. of worst we, we version saw the of himself desperation reached the point where he had to become this person that he never wanted to be right because you know, it like was literally the- life or death for massive numbers of people both exactly. with the kids and the flashbacks and also what we sort of infer from him with farm station on the ground landing in asgata territory where it's like of course you're under attack all the time and so of course and there's another there's defensive. another perverse instantiation 
these, I mean, oh, like yeah. hike all over. Yeah. Like a just cause, which mm-hmm. is getting the kids to sort of band together to survive. Right. Through perverse means, which is beating up Murphy. And then again, same thing on the ground, on you know, like yeah. just cause mm-hmm. protecting the lives of all of his people. Perverse means is becoming, you yeah. know, like grounder killers. Right. Yeah. So like yeah, yeah. Pike has been perverse instantiation kind of like that's been the through line for his character as well. On today's segment of Pike Apologism with Claire <laughs> and Aaron now, we didn't get a ton of Pike this episode, but what we got was great because Indra sort of once again being like the voice of rationality and wisdom for Octavia. You know, like that she she understands Octavia and where Octavia comes from because she's trained her into being a warrior. Like Octavia's warrior values come from Indra. And so and share a kind of like core similarity in their in the way that they like sort of operate emotionally and morally, like they, there's a kind of like um, compatibility between them that has always made their relationship click. You know, like I think yeah. the reason that they click so fast into that mentor mentee relationship is because there's a kind of like basic way that they operate as people that is very similar. The difference that we see is that like Indra being older and having a level of like wisdom and life experience that has kind of tamped down the impetuous black and whiteness that defines Octavia so much comes out in moments like this where I was so glad, even though it was really difficult to watch. I think it was really important that we got that moment where we watched Indra learn that it had been Pike who killed Lincoln. And yeah. and even though she had no responsive dialogue, Adina Porter's face, which is a national treasure. Um, God, she's so she's, good. She was season. so good. Oh my God. Oh, yeah. Man. I'll cry if she dies because she's bringing, Seriously. she's bringing her A game to everything. But all those kind of little moments between Indra and Octavia focused on Indra reading Octavia's response to Pike, like Indra understanding immediately why Octavia doesn't get in the elevator with Murphy and Bellamy and stays behind to, you know, like help run the elevator slash shoot death glares at Pike and Indra sort of pulling her aside and kind of being like, I know what you're thinking. Like, don't do it. We can't kill him, you know? And, and it's like, it's so much more powerful because, you know, we got to watch Indra overcoming those feelings of her own. You yeah. Know, we got yeah. to watch that like moment when she realized when, you know, when Octavia tells her pike killed lincoln mm-hmm. and we get to see like we get to sort of watch her looking at him again with that new information yeah and sort of like experiencing like the rise of that grief and rage and desire for revenge and then you know taking a breath stepping back from it and saying like okay yes but we have bigger fish to fry. We have other things that we need to do. We hear this from her all the time and we hear Octavia repeating it. You know, the line about like, the warrior doesn't mourn until the battle is over. Like, in just sort of battlefield pragmatism where it's like, there are things that have to wait until you are out of danger, until the war is over, until everything is done and the dust settles. And then, then we grieve our dead. Then we get our revenge. But right now in this moment, right here is where you need to be and you need to get your head in the game. Andrew's the only person I think that Octavia could hear that from. And then that it's so beautiful that we get to see not once, but 
twice and the second time potentially, you know, in a life-threatening way that she jumps in front of an explosion to save Kane, even yeah. though Kane has tried to kill her. Like Indra's sort of battle ethics, I thought were really on yeah. full display. Like Kane is still her people and she's not going to leave him behind because she understands on an intuitive level that Marcus Kane is not the person who is shooting at her. Indra has taken that step back from the kind of like clan-based morality, you know, from the sort of like my people versus your people idea that's been discredited. And also from, you know, the kind of like blood must have blood revenge idea that's been discredited. She's kind of like made that journey over the last couple of episodes. And so we get it together from her. We get her saying like, no, we have to do this together. Like, this is not a together of people I like. You know, it's like a together of like, togetherness being necessary in and of itself requiring setting aside things that might mitigate against it you know what i mean like which is much more challenging and and kind of like difficult sort of togetherness and then also what is that great line that she says to octavia the dead can't help us the dead can't help us yes that kind of like saying like so blood must have blood is you know and revenge is a way of being it's a kind of like point of view or preoccupation to have that is focused on the dead the fact of the dead dictates what you do. So we have Indra saying, you know, like what we need to do is focus on staying alive and on the living, you know, right. like the dead, we cannot help them. They can't help us. Right. They're gone. You know, like not that, that you, they should be forgotten, but you need to let them go, which is like a huge, like that's a huge step forward for Indra. And the mm-hmm. fact that she's like got that like machine gun that uh, she's like firing. Yes. So, yeah. so Indra's come a hugely long way. I don't know if we'll see her at all next episode or see her ever confronting Pike again, but they're, you know, like, but, you know, I think it's important that it's not necessarily that she has let go of what Pike, you know, it's not like she's like, oh, it's, it's cool. You know, like we're cool. Yeah. Yeah. She hasn't forgiven him. There are other things that are also important and there are other ways to deal with what happened than just sort of seeking revenge. So it was like really, really great to see that for Indra. And I thought that was like, this is, this was a really important episode for Octavia. Yes. Which made me happy. And this might be our another new segment, Octavia Apologism with Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) I will just like preface this by saying this is not to say that I think that, you know, like them having Octavia beat up Bellamy was okay because it wasn't I don't think we're ever gonna get an apology from Octavia for that because I don't think that the narrative thinks she was wrong. Yeah, um, that's this a is good another question. one of those situations along with the Grounder Massacre where I don't, I just sort of suspect that the writers did not realize the repercussions that those actions ha- would have on the characters that were involved. Yeah. And they didn't really think through the implications entirely. I have a hard time being mad at Octavia because I think it was just a bad writing choice. Yeah. But I think this was a really important episode for Octavia because we had her kind of like having to confront her grief for Lincoln in a couple of different ways, having Indra sort of like drive home to her some of the stuff that Luna told her last week, and then also just like incrementally moving towards reconciliation between the Blakes. So there's like a lot of like tiny little, like Octavia stuff this episode, I feel like there's a lot of tiny little stuff, but there was that that lovely 
kind of heartbreaking shot when Miller and Brian were talking about getting a oh. cabin and having chickens, which was also just like, it hurts. Don't talk to you guys. This means you're going to die. Like, what are I know, I know. I was like, you don't get to have a house by a lake. What show do you think you're watching? Why have you jinxed it? Now you're both going to die. They're going to die together and it's going to be horrible and I'm not okay. Anyway, back to your story. I'm sorry. Anyway, Continue. So, the other thing that was happening when they were having that, like, now we're going to die, we're totally doomed conversation was they cut to Octavia's face. You know, so we, yeah. we have a conversation oh, yeah. through Octavia's, you know, so we're, through her her reaction to it, you know, so like what we're, we're meant to understand is that it's sort of hitting her that she will never have that with Lincoln. Yeah. Which is a realization, I think, that like the thing that fighting did for Octavia, the thing that being angry at Bellamy did for Octavia is allow her to avoid confronting exactly those moments of grief. Yeah. Like Luna said to Tavia, like, all you know how to do is fight. So, of course, she came back and, like, I think maybe that's part of what's going on with Bellamy when she comes back. You know, she's got to fight someone, so she fights Bellamy. And the thing that was so fucked up about that scene is that Bellamy was chained up and he didn't fight back. You know, with the and and the script was so like upsetting, yeah. where it was sort of framed as like, well, he knows she needs this, so he's going to give it to her in this kind of like weirdly romanticized way, where it's like, yeah, but okay, <laughs> but like that's still it's not still really, the worst, yeah, still the worst, like still not okay, you guys. Again, what we're seeing more and more is that like I think you know the the narrative. Well, I don't think that they really appreciate exactly the depth of what was wrong with that scene. I do think it is being framed as like that was Octavia acting out in a way that's bad. Mm-hmm. That was Octavia acting out in a way that she has to unlearn. And so, like, there was that moment of grief, you know, we see with Brian and Miller, which I think is kind of like her being forced to feel the loss of Lincoln in a way that she's been resisting. And then Bellamy yeah. turns and looks like Bellamy sees that look on her. Like, he understands oh. this is happening with her, which, again, my is heart. Like fucking heartbreaking. The Blake siblings are just. The Blakes are rising, though, uh, man. It are. was. He watched her have that experience. Yeah. That kind of sets up what happens later when they encounter Pike. And finally, finally, I think the other thing that happens here is that finally Octavia is shifting her anger from Bellamy to Pike. To Pike. So shifting her yes. anger to the person who is actually who actually did it. Yeah. Actually did it, who actually made the decision. She's like not done being mad at Bellamy, but she is putting things where they belong now. That was really um, important. Yeah. I'm low-key salty and always will be that I don't think we'll ever get an apology from Octavia yeah. to Belly. But the narrative is definitely having her make that, that yes. shift. Yes, decisive. So, you know, so Pike shows up and like, okay, so now she's angry at the right person. But again, you know, sort of like framed in this way where her, her grief is fresh, is sort of like newly refreshed. Pike comes along. She has like, like her automatic reaction once again is to fight. She sort of experiences this pain and then she sees the culprit of it. And her immediate reaction is, why are we not killing him, right? Like, why are we not, like, exacting our revenge? So to have her have to confront her grief, confront the person who's actually responsible and recognize him as responsible, confront her automatic impulse, which is to fight, you know, to get revenge, and then have Indra, who for Octavia now is really kind of the voice of reason and the voice of morals. Like, this is the person who taught her everything that she has kind of clung to right is like so so important for octavia for for indra to tell octavia your impulse is wrong you need to take a step back look at the big picture you need to understand that 
what was taken away from you was not your home and it was not your identity, you know, because that is inside you. That is what you carry with you. Mm -hmm. We're moving Octavia very nicely along towards something. I still like Octavia. I think there's, there's still a problem. I don't have a clear idea where they're going with Octavia. And I don't know if they do either. Like without Lincoln, she seems a little. I agree with everything that you're saying. We've talked about before the sort of baffling deletion of Lincoln from everything, from all of 3A and and from being what he really sort of properly, I think should have been kind of the heart of that Arcadia storyline makes me wonder, are there Linktavia scenes that got cut that would have given this all a solider foundation where when she lands at the place where we see her lashing out at Bellamy, it's been established that is an Octavia thing and not the narrative saying Bellamy deserves to be beaten up. Like the problem is compounded by the number of times at this point that Octavia has literally beaten the sense into someone. Right. And it's been presented as like the right thing to as do. As a good thing so to she, do, yeah. So she did that to Lincoln in season two. Yeah. She did that to Indra earlier this season. And yeah. really like that weird sort of way where it like happened and then like, and then it was never spoken of again. Yeah. So I think that's one reason why it was really, really like when she beat Bellamy, it was like hard to parse. Yeah, because it was like, this is... Every other time she's done it, We're supposed to be down with it, yeah. Yeah, like when that Indra scene happened, I remember watching it and being like, this is a very uncomfortable pattern when you have the white girl who's been a grounder for five minutes, like beating up the black grounder woman and telling her you're not being a good enough grounder. Well, and and one of the things I thought was actually an interesting sort of juxtaposition of like Octavia and Indra in this episode with Octavia and Luna last episode was that... It is viscerally satisfying in a way to have grounders that Octavia idolizes point out to her that she's groundering wrong, you know, like, like sort of to say to her, like, you have such a limited understanding of who we are, of what this means, of what we do, of what it's like to be a grounder, of what it's like to be a grounder warrior. Like you've taken one little piece of that and like locked in on only that and you have tunnel vision and you can't see the whole picture. Which and is just such a like 17 year old thing to do. Like Totally. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, like, I don't know if they mean to, but they are writing Octavia as the most teenage girl. Like she found an identity that she's putting on, you know? And yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm going to be like a grounder for a minute, you know, like to rebel right, against yeah. my mom, you know? I don't really know what that is, but I'm going to be that thing better than anybody else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it's interesting seeing that, like, from our encounters with Luna last time, Indra this time, in a way that both of those scenes orbit in a lot of ways around the absence of Lincoln and somebody else who cared about Lincoln and their kind of emotional responses. Like, like a person who Octavia is compelled to take seriously because she's built up in her mind that like anyone who's in with Lincoln is her people, you know? And so, so she arrives at Luna is like prepared to be best friends with Luna to be like bonding over talking about Lincoln with Luna, you know, and that isn't given to her. And I think that Indra in some ways it was like an echo of that. Lincoln wouldn't have brought that here. Lincoln wouldn't want you to be that person kind of moment. Indra saying to Octavia, you know, your home is here, is the exact same thing that Lincoln says to her in the very first episode where he says, like, tree crew is inside you. It gets back to, again, like we talked about last week, that, like, there are times where Octavia's overpowering emotional response to her grief for Lincoln 
blinds her to like, what would Lincoln actually tell you to do in this situation? You know, and that her anger and her grief for Lincoln transmuting her into somebody who Lincoln wouldn't recognize was really sort of like pointedly thrown in her face by Luna. And so having Indra in a gentler way, in a more sort of like familiar mentor kind of way, but reminding her that Lincoln's key lesson was your place is wherever you are. Yeah, there is no geographical cure. Yeah. You can't run away to another place where all of these things will be resolved because the problem isn't where you are and the problem isn't the people who currently love you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's, again, like, it's very, very common thing. Like, I feel, if, I have a lot of compassion for Octavia because I look at her and I'm like, you are definitely a 17, 18-year-old girl. You're like, yeah. this is a very common experience. And so she's kind of, like, very painfully having to learn it. Um, and I think, like... It's just so hard to tell because I feel like so much of Octavia's arc was probably wrapped up with Lincoln's. Like all of this stuff is emerging very late for Octavia and feels a little bit like retconned or shoehorned or something. It it doesn't feel like something that's been developing the whole season. I wonder if that's because there are big key chunks of conversations between her and Lincoln, you know, about her anger, about her resistance to Sky Crew, about her frustrations with Bellamy, about her growing distrust of Pike, about her feeling like she has no place. Like, Like if those moments were planted for us all throughout 3A and we just didn't get them. And so now it's like, why the hell is this coming out of nowhere and then like two episodes from the end of the season? And it's because yeah. it would, might have been intended to be a callback to something that happened in like 305 that we never saw. Right, exactly. But I'm happy with the direction they seem to be taking her. I don't know how, where that's going to end up for her, but I'm, I'm sort of happy that it's happening the way it is. And also like, I mean, there's just kind of like micro moments between her and Bellamy. When the alley people come for Bellamy and, you know, Octavia looks just so distraught, you know, yeah. she gets up immediately yeah. and demands to know where he's taking her. And and then that also that moment when Bellamy is getting on the elevator and he asks her if she's coming and she says no. And then she sort of like looks at him as the mm-hmm. door closes. Yeah. Between that and like anger sort of being transferred to Pike where it belongs, like they're not quite there yet, but like she's definitely starting to move past that. You know, they're starting to like, reconnect like she can express in non kind of like non-direct non-verbal ways that she still loves her brother that she still has this relationship with him that she still you know cares about him so i'm sure we'll get some kind of resolution next week to that when the preview pictures came out and there's the one of like everyone's you know in the throne room sort of standing around and protecting clark and it's like bellamy and octavia like weapons drawn side by side like battle siblings i was so happy because like because it always sort of felt maybe this is we can hop over and transition and talk about bellamy but it always felt like it would feel right to me if the resolution between octavia and bellamy happened sort of in a situation where bellamy is in danger she will jump in to save him every time and because that's, that's, that's been his role with her exactly you know, so we, we did get a couple of those little moments of connection between the two of them like you said and like and camera cuts that are clearly i think were intended to sort of reinforce the fact they're both watching each other worried about each other thinking about each other we watch her make this connection to Lincoln when Miller and Brian are talking. We watch him immediately perceive that. It feels like it's really planting a seed for that her way of apologizing or atoning or making that like last kind of step moving towards reconciliation is going to be him realizing that she 
still loves him enough that she will like step in front of a bullet if she has to. And that that will be sort of the thing that makes the beginning of full resolution possible. Like it's not going to be all yes. like fixed in the next episode, but they're going to have cleared that hurdle, I think. They'll be sort of like reaffirm their commitment to each other as the Blakes. Yes, exactly. So Bellamy, who also had a big <laughs> night. I know you have a lot of things about Bellamy and I want to give you the floor, but I do want to say, first of all, <laughs> I was not... I was not emotionally prepared for how many feelings I would have at the Murphy Bellamy reunion. I, I was don't think any of us were. <laughs> I felt so many feelings. I felt so many feelings. And I'm and I'm getting like I'm getting like emotional like thinking that but like like part of it was in in what was overall I found a fantastically satisfying hour of television. Even though, as we'll talk about when we get to Clark and Abby, it made me want to throw myself down a well. But it was impeccably well-structured in a lot of ways, um, the, all the polis of in particular. But the meeting of all of these plot lines as we sort of like reach the finish line of this season and the coming together of all of the mini disparate adventure squads into one master adventure squad was really viscerally satisfying as story. But those two in particular, because again, because like the dramatic irony, like of what we know of what they've both been to and that beautiful little fourth wall breaking nod in the elevator to the fact that it's just like, like Bellamy's like, what are you doing here? And it's like, we don't have time for this. <laughs> like, There's not like... <laughs> There's no elevator in the world slow enough for you to get the full story. But seeing the two of them, like the people that they are now, but with that sass and co-leadership trust that they had, like all the way back in season one, but But both of them- defending each other and like fighting for a good cause this time. Yeah. You know, like taking wristbands. I was not prepared for how emotional I was going to get about Bellamy saving Murphy's life. You oh my I mean? God. Like, and I... Murphy's Bellamy's, I'm just like, yeah. you guys, remember six months ago when Murphy tried to hang you? <laughs> yes. We were so young then. We were so innocent. They've always worked well as like general and sergeant, yeah, but in a yeah, way yeah. that like when we first met yeah. them, it was all in service of this terrible destructive stuff. And like the first couple of episodes, you were like, you two are the worst people in the whole world. And then like, yeah. and then as you got to know them, then like Bellamy first, and then eventually Murphy, you know, began to have some more dimension. But the, the thing that made them initially kind of click as a team their chemistry is still there and I just kept thinking like god like Bob and Richard must be having so much fun so know, much fun right? getting to like, like work I together again Bob just being like dude you are not effectively reigning in your hard eyes right I know now. I like, know I know they're, they're legitimately two or three they're times they're so right? happy like, yeah you guys are about to make out just do it and then when like when <laughs> Bellamy like after they kick the last like zombie out of the elevator and Bellamy like reaches down to pull him up and kind of yeah. like puts his hand like on like the scruff <laughs> of his neck talk, a little bit like, come on yeah I was like oh you press Precious lambs. Murphy running over to save Abby was my other sort of like, like thinking about like how far he's come. Weird things that was like you didn't really know that you needed that to happen until it happened. And then you're like, yeah. <gasps> what I loved about just kind of like structurally the way this worked as the first half of the finale is moving all of the chess pieces sort of into the center of the board. And so you're getting this really fascinating overlap of characters that have been separate from each other for such a long time all sort of like moving into play. We forget like 
How long has it been since Murphy saw Miller, Octavia and Pike, characters that have been separate for long periods of time, you know, some very, very long, you know, like in the case of Murphy and basically everyone who isn't Clark. So just seeing them all encountering each other in the context of all the crazy shit that they've been through over the course of this season, going from, you know, Murphy thinking that all the adults could just go die in a fire to sprinting across the room to cut Abby down from that rope. And that after the way that he and Bellamy sort of parted ways for them to be like, again, sort of like effortlessly slipping back into, you know, fighting together and having each other's back mode well, was just, just so to have, like, like all of our almost all of our core delinquents you know like so next episode we're gonna have clark and bellamy and murphy and octavia and miller all together you know yeah. in that throne room in polis yeah and then jasper and raven and harper and monty together in arcadia but all talking yeah. to each other and then also like abby's gonna be there and kane so like having yeah. all of our core people kind of like coming together into one place or two sort of sets of places. And yeah, they're finally, everyone is all back in the same story. Like everyone is all in the same spot, which is fantastic. And I I think because Um, this season's been so disjointed, Clark and Bellamy were apart for like all the three. Like we've had, we've had characters who need to be, breathing the same air as each other for this story to really move along separated for huge chunks of time. And now that, you know, we're in the second to last episode and the gears are turning, having everybody in the same building was just yeah. like, like thrilling, oh, you know, yeah. like, yeah, I was like, I'm alive. Um, and Murphy can now be filed under the ever growing and massive list of people who are completely aware of Bellamy's feelings for Clark. Yes. T- tonight, <laughs> tonight alone, we got Rowan and Murphy yep. and Abby yep. explicitly making textually canon that everybody in the world except for Clark and Bellamy knows that Clark and Bellamy are each other's lobster. And it was just <laughs> like, it became almost funny where it's just like, yeah, right. yeah, it's, like, like it's almost absurd at some point where it's like, Rowan is just so clearly like, Oh my God. Yeah. Just make out. Yeah. Abby's like, you know, who would be the very best person possibly available to us to leverage over Clark would be Bellamy Blake. Yeah. And then um, Murphy is like, I too love a woman, you know, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just like, like we get it, Murphy. We get it. <laughs> Wink, wink. Yeah. It's like, audience, okay. In case you didn't catch that one, we're going to give you a crossfade. <laughs> yeah. um. It's like, ah, oh, oh my God. Yeah, it was amazing. I was like, this is just like, you're not subtle, but I'm not even mad. Oh, no, I'm not mad either. Yeah. I'm like, just like, bring it on. Bring like, it on. Yeah. Like, I want to see how far you can push not making it like explicit that their feelings are their feelings for each other. Before it reaches the point of just like sheer straight up absurdity. Exactly. <laughs> because it's getting really close. <laughs> We're circling the drain. We're getting there. If, if this episode has set, set up for, for that to be like a storyline for real in season four, then I don't know what the fuck they think they're doing. So it had a lot of Valark feels this episode, you guys. Did you? Um, <laughs> did you, Aaron? <laughs> are, you not, are you not shocked, Claire? I know that you are not like, wait, what? It's going to be an episode without Valark feels. Uh. Um, <laughs> Let's talk about Balark. I'm going to just sit back and fold my arms and pull up a chair and listen to you do your thing. Please proceed. So, okay. I will try not to be too flaily. So there was the kind of like awesome, but also sort of like farcically hilarious 
pileup of klaxon light flashing hey everybody Clark and Bellamy are each other's people stuff happening but I mean I think a lot of the stuff with Clark was also moving Bellamy forward I think in an interesting way so like over the course of 3b since 309 I really like how incrementally and how subtly they've been moving Bellamy along it feels much more earned and true and sort of realistic and honest than having him do some kind of like big splashy self-sacrificial act or some big splashy sort of like heroic yeah the advantage of the big splashy thing is that it's unmissable right you know like everybody knows here it comes like bellamy's gonna like try to sacrifice himself or he's gonna you know like save a whole village full of grounders or something like that but like that's not how actual atonement works right like this is like that's a big sort of showy thing, but it doesn't really address the issue. And so I think what I really, really like about what they've done with Bellamy is that we've seen him like bit by bit learning the lessons that he needed to learn from 3A. Like really having to face all the people that he hurt, uh-huh. facing the fact that he hurt his friends, you know, that he he destroyed their trust in 309, that he destroyed mm-hmm. Octavia's trust, facing the fact that he was complicit in his friend Lincoln's death, that that hurt his sister having to face Nyla as a kind of like embodiment as a personification, you know, as a person who like sort of is able to make him face the grief that he caused grounders and, and who puts a human face on the people that he's been sort of like just imagining as, as demons or whatever. Yeah. There's all these sort of like moments through like 309 through, through 311 where we see him bit by bit facing up to what the choices that he made really mean, the repercussions of them. And then starting to internalize and sort of understand what that means for himself. So saying to Clark in 311, you know, like, what do you do when you realize you might not be one of the good guys? And, and Clark says, maybe there are no good guys. And, you know, like, I think that's, that is and isn't a good response. But, but what we see there from Bellamy is that that confrontation with Nyla pushed him to rethink what he had previously thought was, you know, good, solid, correct reasoning. Right. You know, so that's him recognizing his mistake. In 313, the conversation with Octavia and Clark being able to recognize, here's what I am responsible for, here's what I'm not, in terms of, like, the accusations that Octavia is throwing at him, him admitting that he had blood on his hands. So we have all these little ways where we're really seeing, like, very carefully, very, I think, meticulously showing us Bellamy, like, slowly, but, like, in a really true and profound way, learning what his mistakes were. Yeah. Again, it's like it's subtle and probably a lot of people have missed it, especially people who would have already written Bellamy off. But I like that because it feels more human to me. Right. This is how you learn. This is how you change. Not by like one day, you know, like happening upon a situation where you get to rush in and be the hero. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like very painfully, slowly having to look at yourself in a new light, in a more honest light and cope with the pain of it. And so like that, I think kind of like culminated in 313. So last week with Luna, we didn't really see a whole lot of progress for Bellamy, but you know, we know he heard what Luna said to Clark. So this week, what I really, really like is that now that Bellamy has learned all these lessons, we saw him choosing to act on them, choosing a different set of methods. So his, his motivations, I think significantly are the same ostensibly as they were when he killed the Grounder army in between 304 and 305, which is that he wants to protect his people. His goal is to save the lives of his people. But a couple of things have changed. Number one, the definition of people. He's kind of like no longer got these like demarcations. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of like starting to learn to unsee the my people versus your people thing. And number two, he's also rethought 
what he's willing to do in order to achieve those ends. So mm-hmm. if the Grounder Massacre was the was Bellamy's perverse instantiation. Yeah. It was a just cause achieved through perverse means. In this case, in this episode, what we're seeing is Bellamy refusing those perverse means mm-hmm. or trying to to refuse them. So so he's still motivated by protecting his people and Clark. I mean, that's the other thing, like the other piece of it that was kind of like in play in 3A, you know, like that's the reason why he handcuffed Clark. Again, perverse instantiation, right? Like just cause trying to protect Clark, perverse means trying to take away her free will and her her freedom. So now we have a Bellamy who in the beginning of the episode when when Clark is like desperate, you know, and Clark is like frustrated and Clark is still in whatever we got to do, we got to do mode, you know. Right. When Octavia's like, what are you going to do? You know, like ride around from village to village demanding their nightbloods. And like, and Clark is like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like sounds like <laughs> if I got it. Yeah. Um, it was like, incredibly important, obviously for Clark and for all the characters, but for Clark, this is the first time that we saw no one go along with her plan. Yeah. You know, she's in like persuasive Clark mode. Like this is our only choice guys. And for the first time, everyone's like, uh, no, we do have a choice. We have the choice not to do that horrible thing. So let's not. So like, that was a really big moment for Clark. We can come back to that. But I think for Bellamy, you know, like once again, what Bellamy says there is really important because this is also the first time, including last week, that we have seen Bellamy say no to Clark in that moment. In the past, like in Mount Weather, Clark was like, this is what we got to do. Bellamy is like, okay, I will do this horrible thing with you. And this is the first time when Bellamy said no. Like, I will not cross that line. What we need to do is go back to Arcadia to find our friends and check on them. My goal is to protect them, so I'm going to go directly do the thing that is going to protect them. And I'm not going to cross this line to do this horrible thing because we think we don't have a choice. And it felt in some ways a little bit a gesture towards Octavia in that moment. Like the, oh, yeah, that he's, for sure. It, like was that, definitely, it was definitely about Octavia, too. It's him drawing lines for himself of like, I have done this and it was awful and it felt terrible and it wounded the people that I cared about and it damaged me as a person and I will not do that thing again. For Octavia to hear him say, I am not that guy anymore was a hugely important moment. It was really big for Octavia to hear him say, I am no longer a person who does those things. Yes, exactly. And so like that was the first moment where we see Bellamy showing not only that he's sort of like learned that he made a mistake, but that he understands what it is and that he's acting on it, that he is going to make different choices in the future based on what he's learned. Like that's true atonement. You know, it's like recognizing the core of your mistake and in every opportunity and every circumstance subsequently, you make a different choice and you work as best you can to fix the problem that you created. Yeah. So I think that's what we see Bellamy do. So we have like, that's the first one later on when we have him insisting to everyone, we do not kill these people. They're not responsible for what they're doing. Like this again, like this is a moment where, where we see Bellamy is able to make a distinction between the people and the cause that they've been recruited to that he wasn't able to make earlier in the season. So before he was like, grounder army is a grounder army. They're there to kill right. no matter what. Now he's kind of able to to sort of preserve simultaneously this idea they are an army, but they are also an army made up of individual people whose lives are important. Right. That's that's a kind of connection that he wasn't able to make before because he is, you know, he kind of like mentally labeled them enemies and doing so took away their humanity. You know, obviously there's like a practical level where it's true that these people's free will has been revoked. So they are they're not responsible for their actions in a way that 
hasn't been true of people before. But I think the other thing here is that we're seeing Bellamy recognize that just because someone is against you doesn't mean that you can strip them of their humanity or deny them their full humanity in a way that makes it sort of okay to kill them without remorse. So that was a really big moment. You know, and then uh, when they're in, they're going up to the, the elevator shaft and Pike shoots yeah. his two grounder of elevator operators. Now in 303, when they were going to save Clark, Bellamy shot the elevator operators. Yeah. And Octavia yelled at him. She said that wasn't necessary. And he said, yes, it was. That was a very, very clear callback. This is, we are yeah. being shown two parallel situations where Bellamy made the opposite choice and where Pike is still making the same choice. And Bellamy right. has the opportunity to say, why did you do that? That was wrong. We're not doing it. Well, that. and what I was thinking when I was watching that moment was how frustrating it was that we didn't get the parallel between this and the scene that we know exists, but was cut where we saw them on the battlefield and we saw Bellamy talk Pike out of killing Indra and telling him yeah. not to kill the injured grounders. Like that there was a moment that was scripted and shot that, you know, Bob described as a scene that he loved and wished that we had gotten a chance to see because it really gave a lot of nuance to the Pike Bellamy relationship where we saw like the, even from that far back that there were moments where Bellamy was a necessary check on Pike's sort of instinctive trigger happy right. violence. Right. I found myself thinking about that moment watching this one where we're seeing like that once again, Bellamy and Pike are not the same. You know, like the yes. Bellamy's actions following Pike's lead look the same to, you know, Octavia in like the heat of her anger, but are fundamentally not the same in some key ways that are finally really kind of coming to the surface. Yeah. And, and that this is like a return to Bellamy's core self rather yeah. than a kind of like new core self. On the one hand, I'm like, I'm really, really happy with this development. You yeah. know, like I think, like I said, like I think that they've done a good job of showing Bellamy really truly learning first. And then this episode showed us him changing. So as far as I'm concerned, like redemption arc, atonement arc has been pretty well closed. Like I'm sure there'll mm -hmm. be a little bit more next week but i thought that, that this was them kind of like demonstrating okay bellamy has come around you know he has learned yeah. and he's changed yeah. he is actively making different choices than the choices that he made before based on what he has now what he now understands like in the elevator him hesitating to kill the grounder who was fighting with murphy until absolutely necessary he did not take that last step until it became clear that it was that guy or murphy you know and he clearly was sort of like somewhat shaken by it the only thing that's like a little bit fundamentally frustrating about the whole thing and especially even more maybe bringing in that cut scene that showed that bellamy has always kind of like had more hesitation or more kind of concern for the cost of taking lives than we were shown is that like it is kind of really bellamy coming full circle you know it's bellamy right. returning to who he always was which does make the whole his whole season three arc feel a little bit like so why did we have to go right, through all of right, this? Right, 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 like, yeah. The atonement arc sure has been great. There's been like, yeah, like, good job. But like, why was it necessary well, to villainize him for half a season in order to do this? It wasn't that satisfying. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too, because like, I felt like season one and season two, Bellamy, like from the pilot to the end of season two, has a redemption arc that is 
fantastic. And like one is, of the best on TV yeah. ever. Him and Kane, just like no one else ever needs to do it in a redemption arc because like those two yeah, redemption Bellamy, arcs. Yeah, Bellamy, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with Kane and Bellamy's redemption arcs. And the thing yeah. that that is frustrating about how this season has been executed is that like Kane's is continuing and Bellamy's like rebooted and started again from scratch. It's like kind of like a little bit different, you know, like, and he seems like a slightly more pacifist Bellamy than he was at the end of season two. And that's great and all, but it's kind of like the difference is pretty incremental and the damage that they did to his character in 3A was frustrating enough and bad enough in terms of the way that a lot of the audience responded to it that I'm just like, there's a lot of stuff about like Bellamy and 3B that I really like, you know, I thought that yeah, was really yeah, well yeah, done, yeah, but, yeah. but it, I don't, I'm not sure that I can say that it was totally worth it. And it's like one of those things where it's like, it'll kind of depend, like I'll have to do a rewatch and see how I feel, but, but I'm still just kind of like, that was great, but. To a certain degree, Bellamy needed a storyline that was about him in the context of not being Clark's second. So in like the broadest kind of strokes, I think, their arcs over the course of the third season, separating them for a long time, and then them both realizing that they need each other and are better together is satisfying, is a good setup for a season four, and is more or less what we got. But it's how the shades were all sort of filled in of what that looked like that I think in both Clark and Bellamy's cases felt like there were some real missteps that undid a lot of the great work that they did in the first two seasons. I mean, like a lot of this season feels like there's a lot of major decisions they made with characters and storylines that were kind of like perverse instantiation. The overall goal of it was good. The way you did it was, I get where you're going with that. You picked not the best way to do it same thing with like lexa you know same thing with like jasper it seems like i'm unable to process how accurate this is (laughs) like (laughs) this is like this is the truest thing that i've ever heard ah but anyway so in addition to the fact that it is now canonically confirmed that bellamy and abby are clark's number one people and that everyone in the world knows that they are hard eyes for each other um (laughs) they have a bunch of like hilarious scenes you know where like bellamy follows her into the woods and then shoots roan to make sure that he wasn't chipped which did not actually make any sense really but it was fun it was fun and also like i'm totally like you know honestly like obviously roan gets it like he's like yeah i stabbed you in the leg so it's cool (laughs) breathe it um (laughs) i bro tp Bellamy and Rowan. So oh my much. god! Like, yeah, that ship like, was sailing tonight. Oh yeah. my god! It's like, yeah. But you know, Rowan is one of those characters. Where I'm just like, I would totally, I'm down with you sleeping with anyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can get it. You can get it all. Um, yep. So we got that initial opening scene where there was a lot of conflict between Clark and everyone else. You know, and Bellamy, for the first time, kind of shut her down. But then after that, like this, that this didn't sort of like damage her relationships with anybody. So I thought it was like, I think it's really meaningful that that scene, you know, when, when they're making the plan with Roan in the woods and, and Roan's like, you got to come with me as a prisoner. Clark is like, yeah, okay. And Bellamy's like, what? No, no. Where Clark tells Bellamy, you know, he's like, do you trust him with your life? And she says, no, I don't, but I trust you. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's, it means a lot that she tells him that after all this stuff has happened, you know, like, yeah, after yes. rejected her plan, you know, like, after all this mess, like, 
I think what that says is like, it's not like I trust you to do what I say, you know? Right. She's saying, I trust you. I trust you completely as a person. I trust your decision-making. Yeah. You know, I just, I trust that you will have my back. You know, I trust that you will do your best and do the right thing. And, you know, it's just like yeah. that kind of like really profound trust that they have with each other that makes them such a, an important core kind of relationship in the show. You know, it was great to get that textually, um, but I thought it was also really great to have Clark reaffirm that. Well, and it was um, just so moving to there. have somebody tell Bellamy, like to have somebody tell Bellamy that they trust him, which I was yeah. just thinking like- Bellamy, how, words of affirmation, Blake. Yeah, like <laughs> how long has it been- as the team has sort of been like recoalescing over the last couple episodes, he's been pulled more and more into the center of the group again and sort of reassuming his kind of co-leader role with the other delinquents. But just to have somebody say, I know all the things that you've done and I feel safe in your hands was so powerful. Like I was very emotional at that moment. Yes, me too. Like I thought that was so beautiful and so important. Yeah. You know, it's like great to have all these other people kind of like affirming their, that they see their relationship. But like, I thought that was like a really, really huge, important moment mm -hmm. for them. So let's transition over to Clark and Abby. Oh. So Clark, oh, which is so painful. To go back to the beginning. So, so Clark is desperate. And is still kind of making like desperation Hail Mary plans. And she gets a little bit saved by the fact that, that Roan stumbles over them and kind of gives them a way to get to Antari. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting that it seems like in some way this was picking up on what Luna said to Clark last week. And that first seemed, seemed to indicate that Clark, speaking of perverse instantiation, Clark was kind of like still willing to go in that mode, you know, where right, she was right. like, we have this thing we got to do and I'm willing to do anything like, you know, as perverse a thing I guess I got to do, I'll do. And like, you see, like that plays out a little bit in the ways that she's sort of willing to like make herself a prisoner to mm. Roan and so forth. But I'm sort of curious to know what you think about how it is out with, with where she went up in the throne with Abby, because like, of course, like, like a huge part of the most of Clark's stuff this episode really revolves around Abby. So on the one hand, I, so my, my feelings about this are, oh, they're, they're complicated and they're raw because those were the, those, those scenes were, <laughs> those were so, so like I genuinely, psychologically harrowing scenes that I've ever seen. I genuinely can't remember the last time I watched anything on television that I felt so viscerally traumatized by as I did with the scene where Abby almost hangs herself. And even though I knew through the virtue of living on the West Coast and watching this three hours after you and all my other friends told me like, it's going to be awful, but you got to hang in there. Watching it central time. So like nobody had seen it before. I was genuinely terrified that Abby was going to die. Yeah. Oh, like, I yeah. I was not at all sure that she was going to live through that. And yeah. I just kept thinking, like, I remember watching, like, you know, as Abby was hanging there and thinking, like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She's going to die. Oh, my God. What am I going to do? Like, how can I tell Claire that Abby <laughs> is dead? Like, how is this happening when I'm not? Because I'm going to be I'm going to be in Portland with you next week. Like, how is this happening the week that I'm not there? I know. To, like, hold you oh in my, my arms while you're crying. Like, this is terrible. <laughs> I need you and you're not here. You're so far away. <laughs> oh God. Is, but oh my God. Like there yeah. was, it was like two or three minutes that were. Yeah. Well, and then, and then rewatching it, it still made me feel 
just sick. I mean, like I'm watching watching the episode in real time. I had to like stop and just like catch my breath like half a dozen times in each of those scenes. So it wasn't in any way something that I would call pleasant <laughs> or enjoyable. <laughs> but I also like totally fucked up way loved it because I have been waiting for the relationship between Clark and Abby to be plot relevant again in a way that it hasn't been in, you could kind of argue, since the last season finale. They've had so few moments together this season, which has been incredibly unsatisfying. And there hasn't been much in those moments. So my hope was, when Abby takes the chip, my hope was always that what it was building towards was Clark and Abby's relationship becoming key to how the finale unfolded. So the unpredictable and totally horrifying twist that it's not just Abby standing by and watching while somebody else tortures Clark, it's Abby doing it to her and doing it with, you know, surgical doctor precision. And then Jaha and Ali correctly assessing that one of the few cards that they have left to play since they've lost Bellamy to try to get Clark to break is, you know, to go after Abby. You know, it felt like the relationship between Clark and Abby being wired into the A story for the first time was like narratively really, really satisfying. It was harrowing and terrible to watch, but it also felt so important, particularly in light of the, thank God, preview pictures and the clip for next week that it's clear that Abby is now unchipped. You know, they arrive there with the means to unchip one person. (laughs) They've used it on Abby so she can do what looks like they're giving her a night blood transfusion, you know, so that Clark can get into the city of light. So with that knowledge, knowing that like their love is real, the Griffin family will rise. I have a lot of feelings about the way that those scenes unfolded sort of tying into the big thematic questions we've been looking at all along, but that really have sort of like heightened in the last couple episodes about Clark's notion of we don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. I have to do this terrible thing because there isn't a choice. So what was intriguing to me was like, you could argue that the Luna thing to do in Clark's situation is give up the passcode to save her mother because that is a concrete saving of a life. Because we're watching the moment Clark feeling like she doesn't have a choice because the absolute only way to keep Allie from becoming indestructibly all-powerful is for Clark to refuse to give up that passcode. So part of me sort of feels like she doesn't have a choice. You know, like she loves her mother. I think the thing is she does have a choice and she's choosing the good of the many over the one person. Yeah. So she is making a choice. She's choosing not to save her mother at the expense of literally everyone else. The interesting thing to me is that Allie via Abby frames it for Clark as a different choice. Allie frames it as you are choosing to kill your mother, which is actually not the choice. She's like, you're killing me. Like, this is your fault, you know? Which is false. Allie is attempting to force her hand. Allie is attempting to to present it to her as a Mm non-choice. Allie says to her, you're choosing to kill her mother. When in fact, like the choice that Clark is making is choosing to protect the many rather than the one. That's also so clearly what, Abby Griffin would want her to do like the real Abby would not want her to give up that passcode Abby let her husband be floated because she believed it would save the most lives 
Which again, uh, perverse instantiation. Right, you know, right, like exactly. Just yeah, cause mm. perverse. Yeah, terrible. You know, like yeah, it terrible just, means. It just causes saving everyone, and the perverse means is allowing yeah. someone you love to die. And the reason I found that moment interesting was that it felt, in some ways, like a reversal of the direction that I felt like Clark's story was going to go, which is that yeah. we've been yeah. talking about. In the context of Luna sort of being like, killing is always bad. You know, that there aren't, yeah. like, Luna's sort of black and white. Like, there are no situations that are worth killing for. She doesn't make distinctions for. based on scale. She doesn't, you know, yeah, or, or context. Yeah. Is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Single um, death is as bad as many deaths. But also, where it felt like a surprising kind of thematic flip was that all along we've been getting, like we've been talking about in the last several podcasts, We've been getting pretty clear evidence that the show is trying to tell us generally the right thing to do to choose the individual person that you love and the relationship that matters to you over the abstraction, which isn't to say that the other people are an abstraction because that includes everyone that Clark loves, but it is her mom over everybody. And I feel like Clark made the right choice. Like I love Abby and I'm so glad she isn't dead, but I, I wouldn't have wanted Clark to give up the passphrase that's their only weapon that they have left. But it felt like a really interesting reversal of what I thought was the story that they were telling with Clark. And so I'm interested to see where that goes in the next episode. As much as like season three was so much about sort of the reckoning of the end of season two, my hope is that we get a lot of emotional work in season four of kind of unpacking the impact on all of these people of the things that Allie made them do and the things they did to each other. I mean, I, I feel like I could see a world in which it's very, very hard for Abby to look at Clark or Kane for a long time. You know, Abby does not kill. Abby does not hurt people. Abby is the person who would rather get floated than let Thelonious Jaha bleed out in medical. That's yeah. who she is. You know, yeah. she will dig through piles of rubble with her bare hands and like pry slabs of concrete off of the man who tried to kill her in the pilot because that's who she is. And the two people that she loves most in the world, which is Clark and Kane, are physically wounded because of something that she directly did to them. A season four that sort of orbits around like the fallout of the relationship between like, like Clark and Abby figuring out how to sort of like rebuild a relationship with each other in the wake of everyone kind of knowing that like the thing that you did to me wasn't you, it was Allie, but still it was you I was looking at when this was happening and that is traumatic and triggering and awful. And maybe there'll be no fallout. Like everyone seems fine with Raven. Maybe it'll sort of get breezed past, but I hope that it isn't because I feel like that mother-daughter relationship is so important and it's the heart of who Abby is as a person. And so it is particularly traumatic and devastating to see her being used by Ali for this totally evil purpose and Clark having to watch all of this stuff happen. I mean, and just, and God, like in Eliza's face like I oh just oh my god like it's it so was heartbreaking oh god like it's unwatchably sad watching her like little trembling lip and like tears spilling on her face as she's like pleading with her mom like trying so hard to get through you know and I do think and we mentioned this before a little bit when we were watching the show Jaha has this sort of 
throwaway mention of like Clark being like stubborn like her mother that does sort of make you wonder is that an indication that in some way Abby is alive inside the city of light and fighting and in that case you know the trauma inherent in kind of the idea that there is a part of Abby that is still Abby authentically Abby and is conscious of the things that she's doing while she's doing them, but isn't in the driver's seat and can't stop it. That's like a nightmare scenario. I mean, yeah, it's, no, it's like, so... Like there's a tiny little piece of her in there that is fighting for control. That is screaming and trying to get... And can't, the, and, and can't and, like, overcome. And it's yeah. sort of like watching Allie pilot her body. Yeah. It's a psychological horror story, this whole Allie yeah. thing, you know? The whole thing, yeah. yeah. No, it's just awful. It's just awful. Because I do, I do feel like... Like, again, like, it does seem to me, like, as long as your brain is alive, there is a piece of you that is, like, sort of not totally co-opted by Allie. There's, right. like, part of you that is still... So, like, that throwaway line of Jaha's is really intriguing because, like, does that mean that there is a piece of Abby that's still fighting? And then are there other people who are still fighting, too? You know, it's like Kane and they're still fighting. Yeah. Um, and is that going to come into play when, in terms of, like, what happens to him in the finale or, or what we see him do? There's also, like, interestingly, to sort of circle back to Jasper, there's, like, kind of an interesting parallel setup between Clark refusing the chip under, like, the worst kind of duress at the end versus Jasper having given into it. Yeah. You know, like, they sort of make opposite decisions. And Clark under way higher stakes. But a big part of this is, of course, the problem that we watched Clark yeah, yeah. And we did not get to watch Jasper. But Jasper also presented his decision as partly being about the greater good. He saw the violence that they brought to the rig and he kind of believes that life, that peace is not possible on the ground. And so yeah. he sees Allie as a kind of means to achieving something that he doesn't believe is possible for them without her. So again, like there's a perverse instantiation, you know, mm. like what he wants is peace. What he wants is for people to stop suffering. And so he takes the chip, which again, if they had had gotten to see that, it might've been more persuasive, but I think like there's a sort of deliberate like parallel on either end between him and Clark. What they both are trying to protect in a sense is the greater good is people beyond themselves, but they make opposite choices. Yeah. I don't know, you know, like, we'll see how that plays out in the second half of the finale. It doesn't necessarily reflect well on Jasper, which is a little bit troubling. Yeah, yeah. It it is not a satisfying end to his arc, that's for damn sure. Yeah. So, um, so we'll see. I mean, like, I think a lot of that kind of depends on, like, the ending, you know, like, that's what it's like, like, the devil's in the details again in terms of, like, what exactly the ending contains. Okay, so we should probably wrap up. Yes, we should. So next week is very exciting because Erin is going to be here in Portland, in my house, so we can watch the season finale together and then scream about it. And then also for her birthday, so it's double exciting. So wish her happy birthday on the 20th. So the good news is that you're going to get what I'm sure will be a very delightful podcast because we will be in the same room yelling into each other's faces. And then you just may have to wait slightly longer for you to actually get it because I don't want to spend four days editing while Erin is still here for us to be hanging out. But we are also going to be... Through through the magic of Twitter, um, we get to interview Mike Beach. Mike Beach has puzzlingly <laughs> agreed to to come on our podcast. 
And Chow gets to answer After our questions. to an entire episode, like a whole two hours. Yeah, ago, which yeah, is like, which is amazing. Yeah, amazing. Um, he's so he's, sweet. He's totally he lovely. We are like we adore him. And Very I've been exciting. adoring his internet presence all season. His Instagram is like a gift from the gods. And I could watch him exchange like emoji kiss faces with Henry Ian Cusick all day. So um, if you have questions for us to ask to Mike Beach, send them into the Metastation Tumblr. So we're very excited about that. So that's going to be happening. And then also after next week when there's no more new episodes for us to yell about. We're working out a hiatus plan, but we'll be, we'll yeah. be doing some, we'll be stuff doing some cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, if would you, you want us to do something in particular, let us know. We might do like rewatch of seasons one and two and do that. Um, so yeah. So yeah. if you have requests, let us know. Yes. So last thing before we go, two questions. One, who's going to die in the finale of like named characters, not like all of mankind. And <laughs> two... Do you have any thoughts about what's going to be the end of the finale surprise twist that sets us up with a cliffhanger for season four? So in terms of who's going to die, I think Brian, for yeah. sure. I think there's a very good chance that Miller will die, uh-huh. which makes me extremely sad. I hope that that is not true, but I think there's a very good chance. Mm-hmm. I'm worried about Harper. I think Pike is not going to make it, which breaks my heart because... I really want Mike Beach to stay forever. Mm-hmm. Same. Um, I think I don't know about Jaha. I I kind of can't see Jaha surviving, but then on the other hand, I also kind of can't see Isaiah Washington being written off. So yeah, it's I'm tricky. A bit, like yeah. Jaha, mm-hmm. I'm sort of like you kind of should die, right? But I don't know if you will. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Allie obviously is going to be gone. Yeah. And that's kind of it for the. Oh, and I think Jasper. Tragically. Yeah. yeah. I think Jasper is going to go. Yeah. I agree with all of those. And I would add to that, that I don't think anyone of our named characters is getting out of the City of Light except for Kane. So I also think that Amori and Jackson Ooh, yes, are, yes, on, yes. are on my hit list. Jackson for sure. Jackson for sure. Almost certainly Amori. Yeah. And that I think that based on, I think there being some ambiguity on whether those actors were available for season four, I think we're going to be left with a cliffhanger about both Rowan and Indra. Yes, I agree. I wouldn't be surprised if we see Indra next episode. I also agree with you that we're probably going to get an ambiguous ending, you know, the kind of thing where like it could go either way. Yeah. So then predictions for... Big crazy twist. Big crazy twist. Man, you know, like, I've been thinking about this today, and I was like, oh, who can predict it? Because it's, you know, it comes out of nowhere. But that wasn't really true. Season one, they did set up Mount Weather before we got there. Season two, they set up mm-hmm. the City of Light. So I was trying to figure out, like, what was the thing that yeah. they've been setting up all season? And honestly, the only thing I can think of that they've been setting up and teasing a little bit, well, is a couple of things. One of them would be something to do with Luna. So mm-hmm. the existence of sort of, like, boat travel like so in other words that 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 the twist might be that there's a whole other world of grounders out there yeah like across the ocean or something that are going to show up from europe or whatever yeah so that's one possibility i don't know about that though that isn't that mind-bending a twist it would just be more like more grounders which mm. like i'm not actually that excited about um the other possibility is that you know like they think they take down Alley 1 and Alley 2, you know, City of Light and then also the, the flame. And they think that that's it and it's done. 
but it turns out that it's not that there's other some other sort of like force behind Allie or something like that that also exists that was like a bigger thing beyond that mm. that they didn't just like like they're not going to go back to to Allie's mansion right so like right. there's possibly something back in the mansion or in the lighthouse that could come around at some point too mm. Mm. so those are my two predictions or aliens so mine was, and I don't know why I keep thinking about this, the image that kind of kept sort of circling around in my head that could be like a totally crazy, like mind-blowing last little three seconds, you know, of the episode, like bam, last shot. So they're all in Polis, the battle is over, and they've freed all of their people, and everyone's like hugging and kissing and crying, and then, you know, figuring out who's dead and who's alive. And then you see like, an airplane overhead. Oh. And then like yeah. cuts black. Because I was thinking like, kind of like what you're thinking about with the Granders, where like the piece we're still missing is every other part of the world that isn't the Northeastern <laughs> United States. So I've been thinking all along, like wouldn't it be crazy if this whole time there was some portion of the world where like communication was knocked out, but like not destroyed by the bombs at all. That somewhere in the world, fully operational 21st century technology still exists in a way that like season four will be sort of like opening up like a bigger lens of like a new part of the world. You know, I don't know that I necessarily want that because I've, I've been excited about this sort of idea that they've tossed around of like that season four is going to be more sort of like intimate and character driven. So like I, I also am really into the idea of a season four that is about rebuilding in the wreckage of all of this, you know, terrible stuff that has happened and like what a new society looks like that merges all of these things. And that's less like bum, 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 like shocking twists, yeah. but it's also yeah. like a way more emotionally satisfying thing. So yeah, yeah. So I don't know. So, or it could be like a dragon. I have no idea. <laughs> I was just going to say like Loch Ness monster. Yeah. I don't know. You know like, yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. There's a whole world of like the mutant people that Emery yeah. sort of came from that mm-hmm. we saw a few things here and there. So mm-hmm. like that could come up too. But um, yeah, yeah. I, dragon, aliens, airplanes. Yes. All good options. Yes. All right. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. All right. Let's wrap this up for real. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you back here next week for the season finale. 